Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, a very special 80-second episode, I'll be talking to me, or rather, one Megan Bob will be talking to me, because it's the return of Lucas Brown. Along the way, we discuss the secret revolutionary heart of Transformers comics, the path from Grover the Waiter to Brave and the Bold Aquaman, and we go deep into mental health, self-care, parenting, and crying about The Flash. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. I initially said it onto her. <laughs> I just may have to lean away from the mic and cough every once in a while. So, okay, so hit record if you like. Now I don't get all those compliments that you said to me about my voice. Where I... <laughs> Actually, it's funny. My friend Becky listens to McElroy podcasts, and she's like, I kind of like it when Griffin is sick, because then he gets that sort of oh resonant low tone. Yeah. And she's like, gives her shivers. <laughs> you know what? I can roll with that. There's something about, like, sick voice that is counterintuitively very attractive. And I don't you think from like an evolutionary yeah. standpoint, it wouldn't be right. It's like, that's a bad move. Be not into <laughs> it. But we're all like, oh, I learned uh, when I was briefly doing a Avatar The Last Airbender podcast, I can do a George Takei as the warden of the Iron Ship prison voice. All you got to do is really drop it down. And then like Zap Brannigan, the end of your words, ah. wake the captain, Ooh. search the ship. I want that's them found. Great. As again, you got to really savor every vowel, you know? Oh, he's good at that. It's he's so very good. good. And again, you can hear it, like, just, like, bouncing around his throat. Like, I love voice acting and, like, oh, all the wow. mechanics of that. And it's like, you just got to, like, let it bounce. And just, you failed. Oh, so good. <laughs> this is why, like, every time Dan does a voice, I'm always like, oh, man, what kind of magic is this? It's funny, Gary Chalk, who does some voice work for a lot of properties, but I knew him as Optimus Primal from Beast Wars. Nice. Yeah, had a little interview on one of the like very terrible supplemental materials with the Beast Wars DVD set. <laughs> and he was saying that everyone, he's like, you know, people ask him how, how he doesn't need voices. And he's like, everyone has five voices. What you do, and he demonstrated, he like, you hold your hand at about your throat and you hold it down here and then you can move it up to the back of your throat and then you're up in your nose and then you're very lofty and then on top of your head and then you're way up here at the top. And, it's like, and then you add gravel to each of those and then you put it a little bit up here and then a little bit up here and then down in the back of your throat. And, it's like, and you just modulate in that way. And seeing him do it live was just like a revelation. Yeah. Wizardry. 
Yeah. Same with like I I used to hear Billy West on all the Futurama commentaries talk about listening to like Mel Blanc records oh, and stuff. God, Mel Blanc. Or anything where it's like an impressionist who is just like, you know, being a whole party full of people. But it was recorded in the days before multi track recording, so they would just get a mic and do it. And it's like you can hear them switching in real time. Oh my god. That's so cool. Voice acting is so cool. It is so cool. I have a interviewee question. Well, I guess more of a I was going to say landscaping, but that's not the word I wanted. <laughs> well, you see, what you want to do is you want to have a nice alternation between your hedges and your grass. I mean, you don't nice. want to have it just jump straight from hedges to grass. You want to have a little... Hold on. Like, I want to write this down. This is all good. <laughs> you want to have like a little flower bed with like some wild grasses or like some cat grass, something that's a bit denser that will provide a smooth transition from your high hedges to your grass because otherwise it will look too manicured and it will ruin the natural look you're going for. Uh-huh. Also, any kind of like when you've got that bed, you want to use like a red cedar chips because not only does it smell nice, mm. but it's a nicely naturally biodegradable thing. So when it rains, some will break up and they'll provide you that natural mulch. Oh, that's good, because I am really concerned about soil erosion. <laughs> Again, you got to get that uh, that tone in your voice. You oh, gotta man. Get, get your, your NPR voice going. Oh, I know. I was really thinking about what kind of interviewer I am, because I've mm-hmm. never done this before. No, I take that back. I did this once, but it was for a, a physics project, and I interviewed one of the people that worked on the Manhattan Project, which is a very different objective. I was just about to say, I don't think i could have like good anecdotes about oppenheimer and einstein or anything but i could try just to make some up yeah i once read a bad comic book called the manhattan projects but Ah. (laughs) it's a great premise that turned out to be kind of a substandard book Mm, that does happen well it was basically like what if the manhattan project never stopped and was also everyone was just like slightly chaotic evil and in some cases very chaotic evil What a bizarre concept. And that the Manhattan Project was like secretly a front for like, you know, defending from interdimensional incursions and, you know, robot armies and stuff like that. So again, it sounds awesome on paper. It does. But in the reading, it's just just kind of dark and a bit grim. And I'm just like, it's not really what I wanted from my silly evil scientist comic. Yeah. You know what? That brings me actually to a question I was just going to ask you, which is what is sort of the most recent pop culture thing? that you've encountered that you really enjoyed? Well, the last thing I've been really enjoying, and this is something that I've kind of dipped my toe back into, I've spoken on the show about Transformers more than meets the eye and how it's like one of the greatest comics of the 21st century and how James Roberts is like my king and I love him. And there was a sequel series, which is kind of the same thing from Lost Light, just with a new title and doing a reset because the Lost Light ended with this like Bolivian army ending with like this massive battle. And so they decided to, you know, start it over and continue it. And just James Roberts has a particular way. And I mean, sure, it's a giant robot comic, but it's so much more than that. It's this incredible thing that I have trouble describing. But basically what ends up happening is that not even what happens, it's just It's written so beautifully and it's covering so many things. And especially considering that having read this usually like, you know, seven or eight years in the past, I'm now caught up. And the current comic is written around the time of the election in the States. And so all the gloves come off and it stops being allegory. And it starts like, because in More Than Meets the Eye, they're on a ship away from Cybertron. And so they're free to explore whatever they want. They are briefly shunted back to Cybertron during what's called the Functionist Age. Now, the Functionist were an evil kind of theocracy that ran Cybertron for a while. Their whole thing was that your alternate mode determined your lot in life. Mm. You know, you turn into a digger. Cool. You're a construction worker. You can't be anything else. 
you know, oh, you turn into a memory stick. You're going to be a librarian and archivist. And then what ended up happening was there were then redundancy recalls where they decided that a certain, like, oh, yes, because all of the alt modes are created by Primus, our god. And if you change your alt mode, that's going against the will of God. And so, therefore, you are to be punished. And they would then have the Great Cybertronian Taxonomy, which only has 113 listed alt mode types. And if you're outside of those, well, then you're redundant and surplus to classifications. And so you get this incredible refugee narrative, uh, as well as a theocracy and as well as suppression of free thought. And it's like, oh, you know, they... Actually, you know what? I'm just going to read it because there's a page that I sent to my friend Jetta, who is an anarcho-communist. And see, in More Than Meets the Eye, Megatron, you know, big evil millions killing Megatron, Mm -hmm. became an Autobot. He renounced his view and went back to the revolutionary leader that he used to be in this incredible series of stories. And when they find themselves transported to the Functionist universe, what they find is that Megatron very quickly takes this really shitty resistance full of like laser pointers and memory sticks and microscopes and very quickly turns them into a force that can take on an entire planet's armada there's a speech that is just like he spoiler alert for a comic that came out a year and a half ago (laughs) megatron is left behind in the functionist universe oh no because the whole time he's like he's thinking i need to help these people i need to do something and he doesn't make it to the exit point on time and he becomes this revolutionary leader and i'm just gonna read this because this is so fucking good please do Above all, remember, you are not alone. You are part of a movement. There are hundreds of cells like this one all over the planet, and as I visit each one, I am reminded of one thing. We are strongest when we are scattered. When we are apart, those things which connect us, our common cause, our shared beliefs, come to the fore. The Council says that people like us have no value, but value measured by output, by turnover, is not value at all. We are more than tools. We are more than a means to an end. We are the future. In the face of false facts, we will spread truth. But we must do more than that. We must forge alliances. We must reach out to those who have yet to see the world as it really is and convert them to our cause. Theirs is a privileged life. By accident of alt mode, by luck and by design, they have thus far been protected. They've never been told their surplus to requirements or that they're a burden on society. For now, functionism is their friend. We will talk until they are ready to listen. We will teach until they are ready to learn. Eventually, they will see the world through our eyes, and together we will overthrow the council and live as we see fit. Peace through empathy. How fucking good is that? That is chills. That's amazing. Ugh. Who's the writer? James Roberts. He's an English writer, and he's fucking great. Considering this is Megatron, whose motto when he was a bad guy was peace through tyranny. And over the course of maybe 50 issues, has been transformed in this into this figure of incredible pathos. It's so fucking good. Like, look, here's the thing. I'm going to get close up on the mic on this and I'm going to say it. It's still a book about giant robots. Yeah. But it's so fucking good. Like, I have for a long time been wanting to put together almost a book club among my friends who are not Transformers fans to just be like, power through the first volume, which is like a fun little adventure. And just, like, talk about some of the incredible world building that's going on in this book. Hey, this is the book that first had literal trends Transformers, because Transformers are agender, male presenting, usually with male pronouns. And then Mm -hmm. there are some of the colonies who have just been like, we're going to try out the genders and have female presenting forms. And there's one where started off as a male Transformer and then was a female Transformer and having to have the conversation with an old friend and say, hi, yes, this is me still. I look different. My pronouns are different. You can deal with it. 
Oh, that's so amazing. I have ah. never seen the Transformers, and you are starting to win me over. Because here's the thing. I've gone back and revisited that cartoon. The thing is, I watched it over and over and over again all through my life. It was my first fandom. I checked the other day. It's 32 years of fandom. Aw, that's lovely. I first saw the Transformers when I was four. This is, like, in that time, I have consumed so many TV series, so many books, so many comic books, online stuff, more than meets the eye and the lost light is the best thing about Transformers I have ever read. Wow. Mic drop. And I realized I, that kind of got away from me. You just asked me about things I'm enjoying. No, I, I really wanted to leave a lot of space in this for you to get deep into these things. Because one of the things that made me want to interview you was that in the interview format, you have things that get touched on. But as the interviewer, you don't usually get a lot of room to expand on them. So this is kind of room for that. Well, that's great. And I mean, I've actually said it to people as like part of my intro sometimes where I think if there's too much of me in the interview, it's not a successful interview. You know, I can't remember when I, I came up with it, but it was like, I'm the frame, the guest is the picture. If I'm putting too much into it, it's because sometimes, and, and I'll admit this, there are some times where I'm grasping, where I have a, a topic with a guest and we get that done in like three sentences. And I'm like, all right, how can I move this on? And I just think, all right, well, what am I thinking about? And I just start talking. And if something sparks in them, I use that and kind of pull it out with them. But that's part of the reason I have so many after credits bits, mm -hmm. because I find it's like, look, if it's something where I've told a story and it's not related to the interview as a whole i have no qualms about snipping that from the episode because it's not about me do you feel like that's something that you learned that there was a point in your journey as a podcaster where you went ah yes this is a true like a truth that i have to to live as an interviewer it's something that i think i've become a lot more cognizant of i mean like the first ever a math of you that i recorded was with jetta ray which ended up being the fourth episode uh, because the format wasn't really down. And while it was a good interview, it was not a good introduction to the show. That first four or five I recorded over a couple of weeks and I had ready to go when the first one launched. And I chose the initial interview with Margaret that became the first episode because, hey, well, Margaret's a fantastic talker. And yeah, you can put Margaret on any topic and she'll just go. But I also feel our back and forth was really good. And it, it was a much more natural ease into this is what the show is going to be about. Whereas Jetta's one was quite personal. And, and we ended up talking very much about kind of her life growing up in, you know, on an airbase in Germany and some other things. And Jetta's a, like a lovely person and very kind of tangential and will fly off in all directions. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that works better as a later episode rather than an initial one. Okay. Sorry, I realized I've gone off topic there, but... Oh, that's okay. What I was saying is that in Jetta's one, I think we were both kind of nervous. And there are a few moments where I would just bring up something, not to normalize, but just to be like, oh yeah, I felt that way too. And I was listening mm -hmm. back and I'm going like, okay, my saying that felt natural when we're just two people talking. When mm -hmm. you're listening to it as an episode, that adds nothing. So, oh, you know, I can yeah. easily just sniff that out. Then I'm wondering, what does it feel like to be interviewed? As a person who does so much interviewing. Um, hmm. It's like, 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 you know, I just kind of, like, again, I'm not really parsing it as like I am a guest now because one of the things I was looking forward to is this, is I don't have to think about structure. I don't have to think, oh, all right, this has true. to be an ABC. I can be the person who just responds to stimuli and responds naturally. Like, for example, <laughs> you asked me about a, a piece of a writing that I'm enjoying recently, and I go on a five-minute tangent about how great Transformers comics are. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you get to have some, like, freedom from format. 
Yeah, and things, I mean, like, I'm the first to admit, like, a lot of the earlier episodes of The Matthew View are much more structured in the format, and I've gotten a lot looser, especially, like, after the hiatus. I'm just like, look, let's just see where it goes, and really kind of, just to kind of get in the moment and talk to people. That's really nice. Is the hiatus related to the birth of your son? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> Funnily <laughs> enough. Oh, that's we... right. You were still putting out content. I was. I was still editing and releasing content. Like, my, let me actually just check the calendar because my kid, like, there was a time where the Wednesday was the 28th of June. Kimiko went to the hospital on the 30th of June. Hero was born on the 1st. I started a new job on the 3rd and there was a new mm. episode on the 5th. <laughs> Do you look back on that in sort of awe that you did that? Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, I, it's one of those things where with the exception of the sort of New Year hiatuses, the first one was around Christmas because there was a three-week overseas holiday, and I got content up through about half of it, so and then just had to be like, okay, at the end of it, I'm going to take a little break. And that was about a month, and then January of this year, I took about, I think it was like a month to six weeks off because, again, at that point, I had a five- to six-month-old baby, and I had gone on like a recording tangent where I was like doing sometimes five or six recordings in a weekend with the idea of building up enough of a backlog that I don't have to record every weekend. Because as listeners may not know, I only record on Saturday and Sunday mornings because I have a 40-hour-a-week day job that I leave in the morning at 7.45 and I don't get back until 7 p.m. And then I have to, you know, make dinner and take care of a baby and support my partner. And... So when it comes to recording, I really only have the mornings before the baby gets up. So it's like being able to be like, all right, I have enough content. I can take a month off. No recordings. And so now, currently it is 7.17 a.m. because I try and angle these before the kid wakes up. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't as the kid appears on the recordings. Every once in a while, you'll hear him like shaking a toy or gurgling or I'll be handed a baby mid-recording. But one of the other hiatus that just recently happened was uh, infuriating because it was not my fault. We moved uh, and it was only up the road, but we moved on the 21st. Well, moving's a nightmare no matter what. Oh yeah, trust me. And especially moving with a baby. Ah. I've moved lots and lots in my life and never struggled as much as I have with this move just because both of our productivity is like 10% of what it would normally be. (sighs) That's hard. And the other thing that happened was that my home internet connection did not get turned on for more than a month. So (gasps) I I was living off the 4G on my phone and I had no way to record episodes and I had no way to post episodes. It was one of those situations where I had to say to myself, there is literally nothing you can do with the exception of maybe going to a library and <laughs> stealing their Wi-Fi for six to seven hours as you upload uh, a you know, 150 megabyte episode. And actually during that time, even though I had some podcasts recorded, I did no editing because I knew if I was editing content, I would be like driving myself to upload it because I'm like, look, it's there. You should find a way. Instead, mm-hmm. I was actually just like, nope, I can't do anything about this. So I'm going to, you know, read a book on the train instead of sitting with my headphones and editing. Oh, that's nice. The kind of stepping away from it and coming back. Although there was one recording, which is actually going to come out next week as we record this, that I did purely because the guest was so busy and has such a full plate that when we agreed on a day, I'm like, you know what, fuck it, we're going to do this. And I talked to them on my phone and recorded into an offline laptop surrounded by boxes. 
Wow. <laughs> and you can hear my voice is going to be like overly loud in that recording because I was holding the microphone in front of me oh. like I was an MC at a bar mitzvah because oh I didn't have anything to stand it on because I was surrounded by piles of boxes bigger than me. Well, this leads neatly into my next question. Although you've already touched on it, how has parenthood changed your relationship with your work? Well, if you ask Kimiko, it hasn't at all. <laughs> but <laughs> if you ask me, it absolutely has. Because one, I'm not consuming as much media as I did before. And I mean, it's one of those situations where you just don't have as much free time. I'm consuming a lot of the Wiggles. I can tell you lots about the Wiggles. <laughs> right down to the fact that, like, I can tell you which guest stars have been on them. You know, there's an American newscaster who goes by the Hawk who comes on and he's like the Orange Wiggle from North America. <laughs> the sort of the backstories of certain characters and who whose kids and partner will be playing which side character on the Wiggles and how they wear different shoes that are all black, oh but how Lucky only wears the Nike free runs and Anthony wears the old school Adidas three stripe sneakers. Deep Wiggles lore. Oh, right now, for example, I've stolen it as a vocal warm-up, but there's a particular song, which is an old English nursery rhyme called The Four Presents, which has had other names like The Four Sisters, The Four Brothers, or whatever, going back like hundreds of years. And it's got this incredibly earwormy sort of mid-chorus after every line. It's one of those old English rhymes mm. where it's like, oh, there's a riddle in the first verse that's answered in the second verse. Oh, nice. And in between every line, it goes, Perry, Mary, Dixie, Melody. Oh, and then after great. every couple of lines, it'll go, Pertrum, Partum, Paradisi, Gemini, Perry, Mary, Dixie, Melody. And then it's like, that digs into oh, your skull yeah. to the point where I'll be like putting away dishes. I'm like, <laughs> That's very, very nearly Gilbert and Sullivan sort of melody there. Yep, it's very good. And actually... Hey, here's the thing, guys. For all people, like, will hang shit on the new Wiggles that, you know, Simon and Lucky and Emma have joined since the originals retired. Netflix will occasionally jump back to those old Wiggles shows, and the new ones are better. They're exceptionally oh, better. Oh, man. Guys, hot takes on Wiggles. Here. Oh, yeah. I'm dropping bombs. I've said it before. I've said it on Twitter. The new Wiggles music is much more lyrically and musically complex. It's easier to listen to. I mean, the old stuff had interstitials where they were literally making faces at the camera. So it's, like, <sighs> clearly... Oh. aimed at like you know a toddler audience as opposed to five or six year olds or seven year olds so my kid's 11 months and he's watching the new stuff and is engaged but i can also tell you that my niece and nephew also love the wiggles for the same reason and also gee whiz guys isn't it great there's a girl wiggle now amen yeah emma's really great Aww. as far as the math of you personally i'm really curious about you're getting formative media from Hero. I'm curious about what formative media from your life that you're looking forward to sharing with Hero. What, you know, whether or not Hero's into it, but just that you would like to share. Oh, sure. I mean, and there's some that I've already started on. My mom was very quick to send him the Pokey Little Puppy Little Golden Book. Oh, that was one of mine too. Because that was 100% one of mine. Yeah. Also because I, as a child, especially as, say, kindergarten to maybe third grade, I was, my mom would refer to it as pooking along because I was Luke the Pook. And if you sent me in a straight line, it would be like one of those family circus diagrams uh, yep. where <laughs> I would get distracted by a thing and circle around or look at a bug or like splash in a puddle or something. And it would take me like 40 minutes to walk a block. <laughs> and so when she would talk about it, she'd be like, you're like the pokey little puppy. And that was always a treasured book of mine. Also, I have been sent my original monster at the end of this book for Hero. And he's a little bit young for it now. But I have been slowly indoctrinating him to the ways of Grover, specifically Waiter Grover. Oh, I love Waiter Grover. 
because Waiter Grover is something that is so special and also legitimately funny. I agree. I so, you know, guys, if any of you disagree, you're wrong. To the point where it's like, I can just put on YouTube playlists of all the Grover waiter sketches. And this is something I discovered a couple of months ago when I went to the library and found a Sesame Street old school DVD. Oh, nice. Which is from like the late 70s and early 80s. So the ones that (gasps) would have been in reruns when I was a kid. Mr. Hooper on there? Oh, yeah. Mr. Hooper. And it was before Snuffy was real. Oh, my gosh. And Big Bird was much more feathery. Oh, man. It's a particular era that is actually, I I put it on. And at the time, my kid was maybe eight or nine months. And I had never seen him sit so still and engage with media so intensely as when I put that old school Sesame Street on. Because gee whiz, you guys, Children's Television Workshop knew what the hell they were doing. Yeah, they did. And what I noticed is that Hero engages much more with Muppets than he does with live action people or with cartoons. Hmm, That's really cool. Yeah, there's an old school Grover as the waiter, which, by the way, you can watch the dynamic of that where it starts off as Grover getting angry at this frustrating customer, and it slowly morphs into the little blue guy with the mustache getting increasingly frustrated with the idiocy of Grover. It's like, you know how Wile E. Coyote cartoons have rules, right? Yes. The evolved set of rules with Grover and and the blue-faced customer is that Grover gives him enough rope to hang himself. He tells him everything he needs to know. Like there's one in particular, which is like, he tells him, like, do you want the little hamburger or do you want the big hamburger? And he goes, I would recommend the little hamburger. Okay, well, you know, let me see. Let me see the little hamburger and make it very rare. And so he goes in the back and he goes, hey, Charlie, why don't you boil an itty bitty? And (laughs) he comes out with this like hamburger the size of like your palm, like tiny. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's very good. He's like, but it's too small. I want the big one. Sir, you don't want the big one. No, no, I do want the, I'm, sir, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you don't want the big one. I, I want, and finally he screams at him and he's like, oh, bring me the big hammer. And he brings him one the size of the, like crashes through the wall with it and it crushes the table <laughs> and it's like this big mess. And then like, you look back and he's like, he fucking told you, man, you don't want the big hamburger. <laughs> and the, my favorite thing is like in the middle of it, it's like, he makes it like Grover makes a joke and like looks at him and the guy doesn't laugh and he goes, that's a waiter joke, sir. Oh. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm waiting to laugh. <gasps> and I'm just like, oh. oh, it's music hall. It's beautiful. That is so good. And the relationship with Charlie, the cook in the back. And every time he goes back, he's like, Charlie, I know. I'm sorry. It's this guy again. He's the worst. <laughs> oh, man. The favorite was actually a modern one where Grover's at like a coffee shop. He says, I want a cup of coffee and I want it to be fresh. <laughs> and so Grover goes on this extended troll sequence. Where it's like he goes in the back. He's like, sir, that's fine. I will I will make it for you. Hang on. And he brings him out a potted plant. Oh, my God. And he says, what's that? He's like, well, this is where the coffee bean comes from, sir. Oh. And he's like, if you wait a little while, the coffee beans will grow. And then you can pick them. And then you can roast them. And then when you're ready, you can you can give them back to me and I'll make the coffee. He's like, I don't want to pick one. But it's like, this. you said you wanted the freshest coffee in the world. And it's like, and so finally it's like, okay, I don't want that. So Grover picks him himself and he goes, okay, and now you can grind them. No, I don't, I don't want to grind. And it's like every, he basically extends every bit of the process where it becomes like this UCB kind of game where it's like, how much can we extend it? Oh, do you want any sugar with it? Yes. All right. Here is some sugar cane stir. I will get you a machete. You can <laughs> go to town. And then, but in the process of doing this, he's also explaining where sugar oh, comes from, where coffee comes it. from. And then finally he's like, do you want any cream? Yes, just a little bit. 
Okay. Hey, Bessie, bring it around. And he, like, pulls out a cow from uh. the back. <laughs> and it's like... And it's, so it's, like, it's it's ridiculous. But it is also just this, like, beautiful extension of the joke where it's like, all right, asshole, you want a fresh cup of coffee? Here, you can pick the beans. You can you can chop down the sugar cane and dry it. You can milk the goddamn cow. <laughs> that is just marvelous. Oh, it's brilliant. I love it. So, yeah, when it comes to, like, sharing media with Hero, I'm happy to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Like, I'm not going to force anything on him that he doesn't like. Like, I used to go to the library and just, like, sweep a rack of DVDs into the basket and just be like, all right, we're trying Fraggle Rock. We're trying Teen Titans. We're trying Batman the Brave and the Bold, which he liked Aww. a lot because Batman the Brave and the Bold rules. Especially Batman the Brave and the Bold Aquaman, who is voiced by John DiMaggio and is the fucking best. Do you know of Batman the Brave and the Bold? I do not. I know nothing. Although I have, you know, I have passing interest in Aquaman. I okay. I find him a curious person. All right. Well, then you're going to love this. Because the thing is, Batman the Brave and the Bold was kind of oddly received when it was first launched. Because it was after the DCAU. So it was Batman the Animated Series, Batman Beyond, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Static Shock. All of these fairly serious and extremely good superhero stories. Then the sequel series came out and it was Batman the Brave and the Bold. Mm-hmm. And it was very clearly marketed for kids, and it was very, very silly, and it pulled in all of the sillier aspects of the DC universe, Yay. like Gentleman Ghost, and Etrigan the Demon, and like all these things. And every episode was like a team-up at the beginning that was sort of like the cold open that lasted about five or ten minutes. Then you had the intro, and then you had the main story, and it's unabashedly silly. That is so nice. And I think that didn't land. But it's had this renaissance on DVD as people go, no, this is what it should be. And also, Batman is voiced by Diedrich Bader. Okay. So everything about him is a little bit like this, chums. Oh, my and God. Like, like, he fights, who was it? I think it was like one of the Harley Quinn episodes or something. No, actually, no, it wasn't. There, it was a gangster called Babyface something, which was literally a baby head <laughs> oh, no. on a, an adult body. And his, like, gangster's mall goes to fight Batman, and she pulls the, you wouldn't hit a girl, would you? And he goes, the hammer of justice is unisex. Oh, my God. That's... That should tell you what kind of show you're looking at. That's real good. <laughs> also, the Toy Man shows up. Or rather, yeah. the uh, baby face raids the toy man's warehouse, and he comes out in this, like, mech suit, and <laughs> Batman jumps into the Batmobile, and it transforms into a fucking mech, because Batman is prepared for anything, oh, with, like, God. rocket fists. And I remember, like, standing next to the television, and just being like, what? No, this is amazing. This is exceptional. <laughs> I am watching art! Yes. Yes, it is true art. So, Aquaman, you know how Aquaman gets a bad rap, right? Yes, I do. How he's considered to be useless because he only deals with threats in water. Yep. (laughs) And how a lot of 20 and 21st century Aquaman stories are like a response to that. Like, oh, we're going to make him cool. We're going to make him tough. We're going to make him have a beard and a hooked hand. (laughs) Megan Nielsen is screaming at her phone right now. So what the Brave and the Bold does is it basically makes him Prince Voltan from Flash Gordon. He's massively, like, big and brawny. He has a little blonde goatee, but he still wears his, like, orange shirt and green pants. And he says things like, outrageous! Oh, that's great. And, like, he goes to a fight, and he says something like, like he'll look around, he's like, hmm, and he's like, henchmen! Yes! (laughs) And you see him, like, leapfrogging over a henchman and, like, split-kicking two others in, like, slow-mo and, like, having the best time. That's really nice because I feel oh. like a lot of I mean this is my limited understanding but I feel like Aquaman's a little bit sad not sad yep. in his abilities but just like 
Things are tough being Aquaman. It just kind of sucks. It's nice that he has a good time. Yeah. I mean, I it would seem like it would be fun to be him, but maybe not to receive the amount of flack and frustration in life. Yeah, like I just quickly searched Aquaman Brave and the Bold on Twitter, and there's a picture of him coming out of the Museum of Minerals wearing a t-shirt that is far too small for him and like a little hat with like a geode on it. Oh, send it to me. No, I want to see this so much. Hey, God, I'm going to drop it into the chat. This is all I've ever wanted. On that same DVD of Brave and the Bold that I had, there was one where Aquaman was like a bit sad. Like Batman looks and he's like, what is that? A beached whale. And it's Aquaman singing in whale. And he's like, oh, hello, old chum. Seems you've caught me singing the sad song of the sea. Oh, my God. And so that whole that whole uh, episode... Aquaman's like down in the dumps because he's like, oh, you know, this heroing, it's starting to get me down. You know, crime still exists. We haven't made a difference. At one point, I'm sending through the Museum of Minerals picture, by the way. I will wait for you to get it. There we go. Sending. (gasps) Oh, this is so magical. Isn't it? What a dork. And the thing is, the whole episode is incredibly kind hearted because there's Aquaman who's sad. The things have not gone his way and he wants to be a hero. And... Oh my god, his hat. His hat! Yeah. <laughs> he he meets Adam Strange, who is like sort of this intergalactic hero, and his partner and wife is kidnapped by an evil alien, and he gets really down. And Aqu- Adam Strange up until this point has been like a gung-ho hero, where he's like, yes, we're going to have fun-loving space adventures, and ah, that was a close shave, wasn't it, lads? Gets really down, and you actually get to see Aquaman pull his shit together and be like, no, man, hey... I've got a plan. We're going to be heroes and it's going to rule. Come on. Okay, I need to watch this. Where is it on Netflix? Can I watch it? I don't it know. It might be. It oh, might wait, be in the we States. We have different but Netflix, don't we? We do. But and if you Hulu. can find it, it's so episodic, you can jump in at literally any episode. Yes. Because every episode is two stories. So it's like, it's just like opening a comic and seeing this fun little Silver Agey thing with weird references to literal, like, you know, 60s and 70s comics. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. You know, you've changed my life. So we were talking about showing media to my kid, but also it's allowed me to reconnect with stuff. It gives me an excuse, really. That's wonderful. To go and be like, this is good and this is bad. So now that you have sort of these time constraints, or at least harder time constraints now, I'm curious if you had limitless time and resources, what's a creative project that you'd really like to be able to take on? Oh, that's easy. Like, I I think we, I don't know if we've talked before. I mean, I love film photography. I love, like I've got, I had to reduce the collection when we moved. So instead of 68 cameras, I now have 50 cameras. And That's a pretty big percentage cut. It is, like, and it hurt because I had Aww. to go through and take the ones that, you know, overuse and time just didn't yeah. work anymore. And I just kept for like sentimental reasons or, or like ones I had bought and I found out that like, oh, one of the flywheels is broken, but I just really love the design, you know, something like that. And so I had to reduce heavily and a lot of those got donated so people can find them in St. Vincent de Paul, along with a bunch of books that I'm never going to read again. But when it comes to projects, like what I really love to do with film photography, and this is something I've talked about a little bit before, is I really love experimenting with it. I love mm-hmm. doing the kind of things that you can't do without like hours of digital reprocessing and because it's being done in camera it's an all or nothing thing and it's always a surprise when you get the film back so that's delightful so for example i can set my camera to half iso and go for a wander and you know take a picture of every light source i can find and underexpose it a little and then put that in my fridge for months and months and months until i forget what's on it 
And then say I've got an event coming up where I'm going to be taking lots of happy pictures of my friends. I will put that roll back into the camera and shoot it, not knowing where it lines up, not knowing whether it's going to ruin the photos or whether it's going to become into this really cool synthesis thing. It's always an experiment and it always takes like a week for me to get the photos back and I scan them in myself. And it's this kind of delayed gratification process that I really enjoy. Oh, that's so cool. And actually, this is the first year of maybe five or six years. There's a big photo festival in Australia called Head On Photo Festival. And I exhibit with a group of people there called Luddites, because, you know, like Luddites, mm, who love it. use only plastic cameras. So Diana's, Holga's, things from the 70s and 80s that were never meant to last and somehow did and are the worst piece of shit cameras you will ever use <laughs> stamped plastic the whole nice. them, you know bits that fall off if you don't tape them down chromatic aberrations flaws in the lens that will catch the light and give you a flare you know light leaks things like that like we pick a theme every year and then just go shoot and because there's like 16 of us there's always like a huge range of different things and so you'll get some that do portraits and some people will do like studio shots some people like me will just kind of wander the city and shoot whatever takes their fancy other times like i i did one like it was meant to be like playtime was meant to be the theme and so it could be playing with format could be you know kids playing could be anything you wanted and i did a weekend shoot where i like roamed the city and met up with friends at certain locations and played board games relevant to that location and kind of shot it in the wild oh that's cool so like we took Scrabble to the historical library down in the rocks and even to the part where we were not allowed to take a camera in, we smuggled it in and played mm -hmm. Scrabble on the floor until it came out. There was a, a balancing dinosaurs puzzle that I have that we played in front of the Allosaurus skeleton in the Sydney Museum. We played Operation in front of a hospital, That's like, wonderful. you know, Battleship in front of a maritime museum. And I think what I ended up using was there was one picture of my friend Olivia playing Jenga in front of the Harbor Bridge, which looks like a pile of pickup sticks anyway. And it was a cross-process shot, so everything was in shades of green and red and yellow, and there was a huge lens flare behind her, and it was just a moment, and it was on the wrong angle, and it's just her, like, reaching out to grab a piece. And I'm just like, no, nah, that's it. That has, that has the thing. Ugh. And there was another one where it was meant to be, it was, like, about cinema and to be inspired by cinema. And so I did a bunch of sort of miniature shots. I got myself a little stormtrooper on a speeder bike and I set him up in Hyde Park, which is a very kind of wild looking park in the middle of Sydney. And so in regular sized trees and palm fronds and stuff, I had this tiny little stormtrooper sitting and taking a smoke break uh, in what looked like a giant forest in Hoth. I love it. But my favorite one of that was I did, like, I was working at a terrible company in Bondi Junction, but it was up on the 21st floor and you could see the whole city from where I was. And so what I did is I took a whiteboard marker and I drew a little Godzilla because, again, it was a, not a good job. I was working like, you know, 12 hour days on the regular one and oh. I was often the last person to leave the office. Yeah, I worked there for 10 months and it felt like 10 years. And so I would be the last person to leave. And before I would leave, I would walk over to the window and I would draw a little Godzilla and I would take a picture. And it took lots and lots of attempts, but I got one that lined up. So Godzilla was on its way to destroy the city. Oh. That's so fun. I've got that one hanging in my living room. I'm so proud of it. And I used expired film stock, so it looked like that really grainy 1950s oh, yeah. kind of thing. That is so cool. So when you talk about what I would do with unlimited resources and time is I would, yeah, I would just do more experiments like that. That's such a great, I, it sounds like you've done some unbelievable stuff already. I'm like, yeah. I want to give you all this unlimited time and resources. I want to see what else you'll do. <laughs> 
it used to be both before I was in this current relationship that I'm in and, and even even in this relationship before we had a baby but I used to just take off with like three cameras in my bag and even if I didn't see anything I would like you know shoot a layer for some double exposures or there's a camera called an LCA which is this little like Russian pocket camera it's got an attachment called a splitzer and what that does is it covers half the shutter and then you can flip it over and shoot the other half because it's an uncoupled shutter and you can crank it back and do it again. And I would do like little one-eighth pie slices of anything that looked interesting, oh. but never center it in frame. So I would go to the fish markets and I would have, you know, in these little pie slices, a boat, some octopus on ice, some mm-hmm. people selling fish, some people having lunch, some boards, a seagull, and an umbrella. And that would all be in this kind of radial slices in one photo. That's beautiful. And I would never know if that turned out until I went and developed it two weeks later. You're really selling me on the delayed gratification aspect of this. Yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, I get called a hipster a lot when it comes to a lot of things, and I accept that, you know, I have the look of a hipster, and I'm interested in a lot of hipstery things. I mean, you have a really good beard. I have a good beard. I have, you know, slick hair that I I comb over to the side because it's the style that suits me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do pour over coffee at work. Like, I accept these things. But I always think the difference between being a hipster and being someone who's just, you know, interested in old stuff or interesting stuff is you got to bring some genuine interest to it. Like, I really love shooting with film. I really love, you know, pour over coffee. If it's honest joy, frankly, there's no irony to it. Absolutely. There's that thing that sometimes a newer thing doesn't do a better job. It just does a different job. Yeah. And I mean, if a friend came to me and said, I want some headshots for my acting career. Yeah, I would use my Nikon digital (laughs) camera, which is very nice. And I love it. And I love it to pieces. It's also the one I use to shoot the cocktails on this show. But yeah, I mean, it's like if someone said, hey, I want to do a project, I would come with a film camera always. You mentioned cocktails, so I'm going to jump to that because this is something I'm very Nice segue, Megan, Bob. Oh, you know, just a master here. (laughs) How did you get interested in mixology? Like what happened? You just like amateur chemist and then this was a natural outgrowth or <laughs> I mean all children love to mix a thing with another thing. That's true. No, I never had a chemistry set when I was little. No, what it was and this is a bit of a, a tangential story, so I'm gonna get there eventually. <laughs> all right, I'm prepared I'm strapping in. There's a couple of things. One, I got a video iPod for Christmas. Okay. And at the time, your podcast selection was kind of limited. Yep. Especially video podcasts. So I would listen to like CBC Radio, Stuart McLean from Canada, RIP you know, you beloved Aww. man. I would watch Dignation and the Totally Rad Show and other Revision 3 content, which is now Discovery Digital. <laughs> and I got onto a little sort of improv short TV show called Tiki Bar TV. And they would do like, I'm still in touch with some of the people who made it because I became a fan and joined their forums and stuff. What they would do is they would do a little skit that was, you know, maybe five, six minutes and it was people goofing around in, in this kind of... There was Johnny Johnny, who wore a leopard print fez, and he was oh, the bartender. And there was nice. Dr. Tiki, and there was Lala. And they would meet someone and solve their problem with a cocktail. Oh. And it's very silly to the point where they leave in blown takes. And <laughs> like at one point, someone will crack it and go, what the fuck are we doing? Oh, nice. And they would drink during their shoots. Oh, my God. Oh, it was this like beautiful, messy, very like drunk silly... drunk history before drunk history. Exactly. And things at the end, they would give a cocktail recipe. So I got very into sort of the fandom around it and the nice parts of tiki bar culture without the shitty appropriation Mm. and Loxotica jazz. I'm looking at you, Lex Baxter. (laughs) Fuck you. Also, the shrink from Twin Peaks. Fuck you, that guy. He's the worst. I hate him. I watched the first season of Twin Peaks for the first time and I got so mad that fucking. Ask Andrew Isla. He will tell me. I tweeted. I'm like, this 
fucking guy right here. Oh, I hate him. I but anyway, seen um, it, but I well, I well, we'll talk about that later. I'll have to ask you about whether or not this is the thing that I would enjoy. Yeah. It doesn't sound as fun as Batman the Brave and the Bold, so I don't you know. You would love Batman the Brave and the Bold better. You should go yeah, find that. Okay. So what it was is that I started to then try these tiki drinks because there's not really a tiki bar in Sydney. There is now, but at the time, this was <laughs> 2008 or something. And so, you know, there wasn't really much of an outlet. And so I would try them with my friends. You know, I'd invite them over. I ordered some overpriced tiki mugs from Tiki Farm. Nice. And also they would release the show. It would release like branded tiki mugs. Of, I can see them from where I'm sitting right now. And so it was just this thing. And then what happened is that at my work, which was at a call center for a telco, on Fridays, they would do a beer run. And they'd be like, oh, we'll go buy a couple cases of beer and everyone can have one. It's fine. You know, everyone kicking a buck. It's cool. But at the time, it was before I was drinking beer. I didn't mm-hmm. like beer at the time. And I always felt a little bit shafted because I'm like, oh, everyone else gets to have a beer. Yeah. This is kind of dumb. And so I floated to my boss then, which I cannot believe he said yes to this, <laughs> that if, you know, a few of us, say five or six of us, could chip in and make a little mix drink. What I found is that if you've got a tiki mug, no one can tell how full your drink was a minute ago. And so if you top oh it up a little bit, God. you could easily power through. And so, yeah. And the thing is, we didn't know what we were doing. Like, I was buying, like, those little lime juice squeezers from, like, the fish section of the grocery store because I couldn't, you know, work with actual limes in an office. Oh, yeah. But what that turned into, and because it, I got tacit approval and people started to get interested in what we were doing, and I started to add more accoutrement. I would brought in a martini shaker. We'd like go to the Salvation Army or St. Vincent de Paul and buy little glasses for like 50 cents that were like little interesting like promotional mm. glasses and stuff. What it turned into, especially once I became management myself at this call center, is every Friday I'd come up with a recipe. I would go to a liquor store, buy the ingredients for that recipe get to work and send out an email saying, all right, who wants in on the Tiki Bar today? I would get eight or nine respondents and I would go, okay, here's the total cost of booze. We're dividing it by nine and that's the cost of your drink. And I would then at four o'clock when the time would ding over and for the last hour, I would make everyone drinks. That's delightful. It is. And things I can tell you, a lot of those drinks were not good. Like I, it was a learning process. So basically every Friday for 16 months, I had what essentially added up to free cocktail practice. Oh. The other thing I didn't even think about until it started happening was at the end of the day, I would have these tail ends of bottles that would be like a third of a bottle, you know, a quarter of a bottle, half a bottle left over. And I would take those home. And very quickly, I would realize that I had this amassed (laughs) cross section of booze that I might not have bought on its own, you know? Oh, yeah. And then I would have people over and just start experimenting. And I mean, I'm my friend Brenton referred to me as house proud once and I am I love entertaining. I love having people over. I love cooking for people. I love making drinks for people, especially when it comes to someone who just says, hey, make me something. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also a bit of a research monster. You know, I've got books and books about cocktails. There's a really good cocktail book by the Everly Bar, which is one of my favorite ever bars in the world in Melbourne, which is like checkerboard floors and old wood Mm. and, you know, 15 kinds of homemade bitters. And Mm. there's no menu. You just tell them what you like and they'll Uh, make you something like that kind of place. I want to go to there. Oh, it's so good. Like I walked in on a whim. And was so charmed that I have been back every time I've been in Melbourne. And I will evangelize this place till I die. They released a book. And it's one of the best cocktail books I've ever worked with. A lot of the more recent Matthew cocktails have been adaptations from that book. But what I'll also do is I'll find old cocktail books. Mm, I'll go back to the 20s. I'll go back to the 30s. People were inventing these things going back a ways. The thing is, 
when it comes to that sort of stuff, I will research, I will work it out, I will tweak two or three things based on what I have, and I will just try stuff. And this is something that I've tried to instill in my friends. Mm-hmm. A really good thing for you to do to learn what you like and what you don't is to spot the local cocktail bars in your area, the good ones, you know. Luckily, Sydney has like six sort of speakeasy type places on the same block around York and Clarence Street. You know, places like The Rook, places like Grandma's, like Lobo Plantation, like the barbershop, which is very cool because you walk in and it's a barbershop and you go to the big metal door at the back and they let you into this cavernous bar. Mm-hmm. You feel like the coolest person on the planet. Oh, yeah. Or The Rook where it's like you go into and it's like the basement of an office building. And there's an elevator and you press the R button instead of taking you to the roof. It opens to the Rook. They're the kind of place where they serve you a cocktail called Werewolves of London. And it comes with a napkin with like a phone number written on it in pen. And you call the phone number and it plays the Warren Zivon song, Werewolves of London. Oh my God. That kind of place. And thing is, what you do is you go to these places when it is not busy. Do not do this when it's busy. Yeah, amen. Go somewhere like on a Tuesday night, you know. Go somewhere on a Sunday afternoon and order something you have never tried before and talk to the person making it. Mm-hmm. Ask them, so what's this like? Will I like this? I like these things. Is this good? Oh, what's that you're doing there? Is that something different? Oh, I notice you're, you know, holding that orange peel near a flame but not touching it as you twist it. And oh, there's a little flare. That's really cool. What's that do? Oh, it ignites the oils and it makes it smell fantastic and there's like a sheen on top of the drink. So all these little tricks, they're not just for show. They make the drink taste better. So like I learned, for example, there's a thing that a lot of old cocktails do where they'll do a rinse of a certain alcohol and then pour it out, especially something like absinthe, which is really aromatic and strong. I hate that because it's wasteful. I love the result, but I hate swirling, you know, Mm. an expensive bit of booze around a drink and then pouring it out. You can pour it into your face, but, you know, that's less classy. (laughs) Yeah. What a place called the Swinging Cat down in Sydney will do is they have these little, like, you know, when you go into like a dollar store, those little like atomizers that you see in the makeup section? Yeah. These little like tiny spray bottles. What you do is you put the absinthe in there and you hold up a glass and you go spritz, spritz, and that's it. It coats every bit of the inside of the glass. That's so smart. It gives you the same aromatics and it's not wasteful. I saw them do it once and my jaw dropped and I was like, that's genius. He's like, yeah, "Yeah, we just found we were going through a lot of stuff doing rinses and we're not allowed to pour it back into the bottle and we're also not allowed to get shit faced on the job so we can't (laughs) just drink it all. So someone came up with this and we thought it was a good idea. Again, something like, and now I have two or three of those of, like, I'll buy like a little airplane bottle of absinthe because I don't want a whole bottle of absinthe. I'm 36 years old. So I will buy a little bottle of that, fill into the atomizers and use it for my rinses. Genius. So yeah, and really, so it's just a matter of trying stuff. Don't be scared. And if you don't like something, finish the drink anyway, because (laughs) a lot of things will change. And you'll be like, ugh, the first sip is just like, ugh, that was a bad choice. But then sit on it. Work out why you don't like it. Yeah. Is it the bitterness? Is it too sweet? Is it too strong? And then start to adjust. I actually want to give you some room right now to describe what makes cocktails such an artful experience and why mixing alcohols is magic. Because I think a lot of people maybe (laughs) don't. I think it's rare the person who can really go in and describe why this is so extraordinary. Actually, I think I can handle it. And I will compare it to another thing that I really love that is really important to me, and that is pour over coffee. And I'll tell you why. Okay. It's because, now, pour-over coffee, for those who don't know, if you've seen a Chemex or like a, a, a Vario pour-over, it's like the little cups with the hole in the bottom and you put the filter and the grounds and then you pour just shy of boiling water over it and that makes your coffee. And it's really smooth and not bitter and also just as strong as like, you know, uh, a strong cup of coffee but much smoother to drink. What I've found with the pour-over process, and this is true of the cocktail process as well, is it's like coating. It's garbage in, garbage out. Hmm. every tiny change you can make to this to make it a little bit better gets you an exponentially larger result down the line. 
And I used to think that was bunk. I used to think it was just marketing, right? So when I first got, I, um, my friend Ginger got me the Chemex for my birthday. And that was very nice of them because it was a beautiful thing. And I've gone through a couple because my cat knocked one of them off the bench. Aw, cat. A Chemex is, some, for those who don't know, is like an hourglass shaped sort of beaker. They're beautiful. And the top holds the filter and the bottom. And there's like a wooden handle. It's just like a beautiful thing to have on your bench. What I was doing is I was buying these like pre-ground coffee from the supermarket and using it in off-brand filters and just using water from the tap, which I boiled to death. And I just started reading about it. And they were like, use filtered water, you know, buy the branded filters, do these things. And I was like, oh, come on, guys. You know, it's just, it's wank. You know, it's uh, you're trying to <laughs> fancy this up. But here's the thing. I bought myself a Brita filter, a cheap Brita filter, and used that water. And suddenly my coffee tasted better. I bought the branded filters that are really thick and papery. And they're like, hey, rinse it under hot water first to get the papery taste off. Okay, I'll do that. Use beans and grind them yourself. Grind them coarse and make sure they're fresh within a week of having been roasted. Okay? As the beans get older, use a coarser grind. Okay, I'll try that. Get something that's filter roasted instead of espresso roasted. Okay, I'll try that. And literally every step of that process gets you a better product at the end of the line. And it's not just if you're looking for the difference, you taste it. You taste it nonetheless. So when it comes to alcohol, specifically when it comes to cocktails, it's not just, hey, I want something that at the end is going to taste good. It's like when you're mixing it, like you can add stuff in as small a measurement as like five milliliters or less. You can use an eyedropper if you want. And if you're doing it right, every little thing will add something or it will smooth something else. Like you can add five milliliters of Islay whiskey, which is extremely peaty and smoky and like overwhelming if you have it on its own sometimes. Mm -hmm. You add five milliliters of that to a Manhattan made with rye and that will add a component that was not there before. And so that's when you get to that kind of, like you said, that kind of magic, that kind of alchemy. And so when like I'll do something like I'll make a cocktail and I'll say in the instructions, hey, I want you to hold like a sage leaf and I want you to clap twice. And what that does is rather than cutting a sage leaf oh, yeah. which leaves an awful kind of sharp edge to it yeah. what you're doing is you're slightly bruising it and you're letting the aromatics out and so it smells without being so crushed that it leaves particles in the drink something like that again it seems like showmanship it seems like oh it's pageantry but no you're doing everything for a reason at least you should be now the thing is there is pageantry in bartending like i mentioned the rook before if you go there and order a negroni they will twist the orange peel over a flame so it makes a big whoosh before they drop it in and it's cool and I, I remember commenting on it the last time i was there and the bartender looking a little bit ashamed i'm like no dude do your thing yeah this is cool this is fun you know and really that's the point of it you shouldn't drink anything that you don't like like if you really don't like it don't drink it and right. find a thing that you like and if you want to be the guy who orders that thing order that thing but here's the thing if you're gonna order that thing know why you like it and be able to explain it. And also, if you're telling someone to make something, tip well at a bar, guys. Especially if it's one of those situations where you're like, hey, I'm, I'm ordering a thing that involves work. Tip better. That is good advice. <laughs> I'm curious if there's a white whale liquor that you'd really like to get your hands on, but you just have not oh, managed there's... yet. I'm sure you probably have a short list of white whales that you're coming after. Funnily enough, like I literally just tweeted about this yesterday. And the thing is because... I have a tendency to buy white whale liquors, but they last forever on my shelf because <laughs> not everything that is super interesting mixes well yep. or plays well with others. So true. This upcoming week, I was encouraged to buy a bottle of Estrega. Do you know what Estrega is? Wait, how is it spelled? S-T-R-E-G-A. You know what? I've heard of it. I know. Is it one of... Is it made by like monks and it's got it kind is, of a yeah. funky... It's very... Many, many herbs died 
You're thinking of chartreuse, which I also love and will go to bat for due to its high potency and extremely interesting taste. But no, Stryga is a little bit similar to that. And it is a herbal liqueur. It has a million different ingredients. Its recipe is a secret. Nice. Stryga means witch. Oh, it's bright yellow and it comes in this like cut glass bottle where it's Mm. got like sunburst thing. It's an Italian liqueur. Ah, yo quiero. Yeah, it's very good. And it's something that you have to be very specific in how it used. But I know that like, for example, most recipes that use Strega use half a shot or less. So because it brings so much that it's very easy to overwhelm. Like I'm going to be mixing it with like lemon juice and lilette blanc and cayenne pepper and like chipotle hot sauce. Like nice. it can take all of that and still be interesting. So when it comes to white whale stuff, like yesterday I was, uh, we were killing time after having lunch with Hira and Kimiko and she kind of went off the bathroom and I wandered around and I found there was a bottle shop there and I was looking at like maple whiskey mm, and yeah. Earl Grey tea gin mm, and num, num, num. My favorite thing, which is by a a company called Four Pillars, they make what's called a bloody Shiraz gin. And what they do is they steep their small batch gin in Shiraz grapes, which are made using the same yeast process, which is how they make rosé. How they should make rosé. Wine aficionado too. I'm not a wine snob because fuck it, give me your two buck chuck. But I love talking about it. It's something so interesting. But I tried this and I'm like, I am taking a little nip of gin in the middle of the day at a bottle shop. But this is so flavorful and so aromatic. And it's just like you get like raspberries and like orange peel and like just like this burst to the point where Kimiko came over and I let her try some. And she was like, this is amazing. And she doesn't drink straight liquor. She doesn't like cocktails that are very strong, Mm. but she loved it. And I would have bought it except for it's $95. Ah. And so it's on my list and I will eventually get it. It will be mine. Oh, yes, it will be mine. (laughs) But not right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a hefty price tag. I mean, now that you're so deep into it, I assume you do some of your own making or some of your own infusing now. I do. And really, it's also a question of how much am I going to use versus Mm. how much do I need? So what I've found is much easier than infusing actual liquors is infusing syrups. You know, when you make simple syrup, you have equal parts of sugar and water and you boil them. And when the sugar's all gone, you strain it into a bottle and then you put that bottle in the fridge and it lasts forever. So what you do is anything you add during the boiling process goes with it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you drop two cinnamon sticks into the water as it boils and strain them out, that's cinnamon simple syrup. If you split a red bird's eye chili and drop it in, that's your chili simple syrup. My favorite was I got one of those like super cheap $2 herbal teas from the supermarket that was like ginger and apple. And so I threw a tea bag in there while it was boiling and got ginger apple tea simple syrup. All these things bring something to it. So it's especially considering I have sauce bottles that I've saved and washed out or whenever I buy a, you know, like a fancy juice or something that comes in a glass bottle. And if it's clear, I save that bottle and I wash it out and I cap it back up. And that's my simple syrup bottle. Again, because the cost of application is so small, you know, cup of sugar, cup of water, some time. That's it. That's all you need. And so that leads you to experimentation. How many simple syrups do you have in your fridge right now? Less than I did before the move. (laughs) Yeah, that's reasonable. I remember looking and being like, okay, I have two inches of this left in the bottle and I have to kind of ferry things across in like freezer bags. So sorry, chili simple syrup. I ended up using the last of the tea one. And I think there was one other, but yeah, I ended up just like pouring them out. Also, you'll find with any infusion, they get stronger as they sit. Oh, I really loved there was a rosemary infusion I did and I really, really loved it. It was a brilliant flavor, but it got more intense as you Mm. went on. And so that oiliness and that kind of bitterness came to the fore. And I'm just like, I can't use that anymore. 
That's good to know. I did not know that they strengthened over time, but I suppose do they lose some of the liquid in them? As you're using it, if you think about it, any kind of like invisible sediment that you have will settle to the bottom of the bottle. Oh. So if you're pouring from the top of the bottle, it'll be great. But then you get to the bottom and you've got, you know, the ghosts of the departed brothers <laughs> hanging around and you take a sip and you're like, Bleh. it was the same with I bought this barrel aged gin in the States and it was like pink. I think it was one of the old Tom gins and mm-hmm. it was super interesting tasting and you had to like treat it like a whiskey rather than a gin because it was so powerful taste wise, not liquor wise. But then I found I got to like the bottom third of the bottle and I'm just like, oh, this is a, it's a lot because yeah, it continues to age in the bottle and oh. you get to that bottom and it's like, it's got that slightly pickly vibe by the oh, end of it. And that's, it's like, yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, it doesn't play well <laughs> with other things. Yeah. You're like, this is interesting. Not good, but interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that's the kind of thing that I like to experiment with. Well, I'm jumping to uh, some very different topics, but... Sure, please. So when you think about yourself as a creator, what do you think of as your defining motivation and drive? You know, I think if you would ask me like a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I would have just said enthusiasm. And I will bring, like even to something I don't like, I apply the same level of attention as I do to something I love. And I think in some cases that will make me not like the thing even more. In some cases, that will make me like it a little better. In some cases, it will let me articulate why I dislike this thing so much more. So when I really go down that rabbit hole, I can tell you exactly why I hated this thing and why it's bad. But recently, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine who had recently gotten to professional wrestling. And as you know, I'm a professional wrestling evangelist, right? I'm aware of this about you. Yeah. It's one of your many charms. <laughs> Thank you. And I was trying to get someone into it. And I was specifically being very kind of step-by-step and methodical about it. Like I would, I sent them one match and I wanted to know what their thoughts were and we talked about it and we went through it at length and then every time I would see like a gif of that person who was in that match that they really liked I would send it to them and comment about it what that person then told me in confidence and again I'm being very specific so I don't call them out is that the minute they said I'm kind of getting into wrestling all the wrestling fans in their timeline were like yes finally let me bombard you (laughs) with my favorite thing and this other thing and this thing you have no context for and this inside joke that I like don't you love this don't you love this let me send you a video let me send you a link and that can be really alienating for somebody and so they actually gave me a massive compliment and I thank them for this where they said that I go about it the right way which I attempted to explain you know worried that I was one of these people and they went no you're not I said, good, because what I try to do is I take one thing that someone likes and I identify what they like about it. And then I talk about that for a while and then I iterate and try something else. Now, they don't like that thing. I never mention that thing again. And so if I then bring up another thing that's similar and they like that, too, well, yeah, we can expand on that, too. It's building blocks. It's the way we all interact with media. It's just it's rare that people think about it when they see a friend oh, get into yeah. it because all they want is that friend to be at the same level oh, they're of at. Course. And that's a, a genuine positive feeling, but it can be very overwhelming. So I'd like to think that when you ask me about you know who I am as a creator, I want to be someone who can gently encourage people. I want to be someone who can bring somebody in. And a friend of mine who um, who's sadly not with us anymore, her name was Elizabeth, and she I've only met her once in person, but we talked online a lot. And when we were hanging out together, a mutual friend of ours mentioned that I was someone who, when I heard that someone hadn't seen something or hadn't heard something, my response was never negative. I was never looking down my nose at that person. My response was that I would be excited because then I get to show you this thing. Mm. Isn't that great? Oh, you haven't seen this? It's so great. Would it be okay if I showed you this? And then we can talk about how great this is. And I think that inclusive kind of media consumption, that's like inclusive nostalgia is something that I treasure because look, 
we were all stupid kids at one point. We all knew nothing at yep. one point. We all had a cool person or a couple of cool people. I've had it several times in my life. It was my friend Andrew when I was 13. It was my friend David when I was 24. Someone who would just give you stuff. Here, listen to this. I think you'd like it. Or it's cool. You'll dig this. And I've learned so much from those people in my life. And I've tried to take that on that none of those people would ever judge me if I hadn't listened to The Clash. Mm. or back in the day if I didn't know who Nirvana was and I just saw those Kurt Cobain t-shirts and went who's that I would never get the sneer from those people you know that's really beautiful so that's something I've tried to kind of bring into myself as a creator yeah I think I was going to use the word includer as well or like inclusive but yeah I would definitely describe you as somebody whose drive is including bringing in well thank you and I wanted to ask you then what do you see as the most meaningful part of your work that part that makes an impact from your perspective i mean you talk about me being an includer this is starting to sound evangelical and no, i can fine. feel myself I... shrinking away from that no but... don't lean in lean in all right all right <laughs> i think when it comes to the most meaningful part of my work i think and hey this is a word that has been repeated so much it's lost its meaning i want to talk about rapport and thing is, as someone who has worked in call centers for more than 10 years, when you say to someone, oh, I want you to build rapport, people think it means asking how your day is going. Yep. Chatting about the weather. You know, oh, really? Are you going on a trip? Where are you going? I hope you enjoy your trip. That is the most basic form of rapport because rapport means finding something in common. Mm. And finding similarity between you and another person. Even if that's liking the same movie. Even if that's, oh, I've heard that song too. That song's great. I think part of why I started The Math of You is because, and you would have heard this when you heard my Math of Me episode with Margaret H. Willison, who I'm eventually going to have back on again, Margaret, even though your schedule sucks. Yeah. It's that when I was moving around as much as I did when I was a kid, I would use media as a touchstone because everyone has seen movies. Everyone's listened to music. Everyone's watched cartoons. And arriving in a new school in grade 10 and making friends with kids from the drama club because we knew The Princess Bride. Because once, when I was in grade four, my mother rented it from the library. Hmm. Me being me, I could still remember lines from it and oh, talk yeah. about it. And so this thing that these people thought was just their thing, you could find out that, no, I know this thing too. Let's be friends. You know, let's talk about this thing. I only liken it to the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time books were my shit when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Like I read them obsessively over and over. I still, I, this move, I got rid of some of my frontless, backlist, falling to pieces, <laughs> tore paperbacks of like... The Shadow Rising, and The Fires of Heaven. R.I.P. books. Yeah, R.I.P. books indeed. God, those tour paperbacks sucked. Mm. What I found is that, is that feeling of the first time that you realize someone else has read the same book oh, as yeah. you that you've never spoken about to anyone else before. And finding out they pronounce all the names differently. But sitting there and being able to go, oh my god, you know, and when this happened, and when, you know, Lanfear turned up on the docks at Ruidian, and Moraine died jumping through the portal. Spoiler alert for a 20-year-old <laughs> book. More than that, god. And just like talking about these oh shit moments in this book that had forever been in your own head. And that moment where it's like someone in a previous episode referred to that as finding your nerd tribe. Mm. And this is a story I've regurgitated ad nauseum on this show, but it's so important to me. My father thought The Lord of the Rings was this little known book that nobody else had ever heard of that he loved wow. so much that he read when he was a teenager hitchhiking around the states then suddenly heard in a jimmy page song called ramble on a reference to gullum stealing my girl away uh, you know i went to mordor or something and just like having his jaw drop and went jimmy page read my book oh my God. robert plant read my book 
these people like my book. And I remember taking him to see The Two Towers and The Fellowship of the Ring in theaters mm-hmm. and watching my dad's face be like this thing that I, I thought only I knew and then later learned some other people liked is now this massive, incredible film and I can watch it on screen. That's really beautiful. So yeah, coming way back to your question, the mm-hmm. I think the meaningful aspect of my book is I've had people write me letters, I've had people contact me, people who became future guests, people who have become my friends, to say that I didn't expect to hear my exact childhood ever recounted on a podcast by a person I have never met. I've seen people start up friends, like for, former guests of the show who become friends through me. Oh. And I mean, it's a little big noting myself to say it, no. but like Melissa Bright who is, who was, has twice been a guest on the show and who was a lovely person, went to London to visit her husband's friends and met up with Lucy Harrison, who was a previous guest of the show, and they went to see a musical together. You cannot hear the smile on my face, but it's very big. Mutual friend of ours, Claire Mulcairn, has met up with Jojo Seams and Andrew Isla, who have both been guests on this show. Ah. They went to the movies together and took a picture, and I'm just like, <gasps> friends, everyone is friends. Oh. Oh, so much, so much emotional connection with this, this friend service thing that you have going. While I put that entirely on them, that is a thing they have done. I feel this great swell of pride whenever I see something like that. Or even just like people who comment on my show or talk to me about stuff. Then talking to other people that I talk to and comment about stuff. My friend Brandon, who I met through Chris Sims and other people who went to King of Trios in 2000. I think it was 2016, who I talked to wrestling about, and my IRL friend Francis, who in the last year has gotten super into wrestling, bonded over the Kenny Omega Kazuchika Okada match that happened at Dominion yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I looked back and they were following each other and talking about all of the emotional wrestling feels that they had. Mm-hmm. And I actually popped in and I'm like, oh, Brandon, Francis, Francis, Brandon. And Francis said, oh, yeah, well, Lucas' recommendation goes a long way. And I kind oh. of glowed a little bit. So yeah. As well you should. That's that's a lovely thing to be told. So yeah, people who listen to the show, if you see me commenting with guests, feel free to weigh in. I mean, it doesn't always end out that way, but like I want to encourage conversation. I want to see people who respond to the stuff that I say. I mean, I can happily talk about how, you know, for a long time in my life I was driven by the external approval of others, but this is the kind of good version of that. Mm. Seeing stuff kind of come from something that you've done is incredibly rewarding you touched on professional wrestling i feel like it would be remiss of me (laughs) to let that pass by so i am aware as i think most people are that professional wrestling is deeply important to you and i would describe myself as wrestling curious so i'm interested to know when you realized that this was a medium that fulfilled something really important to you and then to the extent that you can articulate this what do you think that other art forms and genres and mediums can learn from professional wrestling and what it does so well? Okay, so professional wrestling has been a part of my life for, I did the math the other day, it's something like 27 years. If professional wrestling was a person, it would have finished college and been really confused about what it was doing with its <laughs> life. So like I used to go in the food court in the Regent Mall in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. My mom would be having coffee with a friend and I would wander over to the newsstand, still with an eyesight because I was not allowed to go very far. And I would grab WWF magazine off the shelf and read their Battle of the Titans segment, which was like just a, a blow-by-blow recap of a match. And it usually wasn't a particularly good match. It was just a, oh, you know, here's Virgil taking on Cato from the Orient Express. Yeah, it was a bad time for wrestling. <laughs> yep. But it was like reading 
you know, prose about comic books, hmm. you know, descriptions of these massive things. And my dad would put it on because he used to watch professional wrestling when he was a kid and used to love it. And so would encourage that. And looking back, I mean, my dad was always very strong in fostering my interest in narratives that had a very clear good versus evil, right versus wrong narrative. If you look back at the selection of war movies that he would show me, it was never the ones that were about the horrors of war. It were about mm-hmm. the ones that the ones that were about doing the right thing. Dad was very interested in that kind of stuff, so he was very happy to put on, you know, now known as racist hot dog man Hulk Hogan, oh. and the Ultimate Warrior versus Sergeant Slaughter, a General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa in a match made in hell, bookended by the match made in heaven, which was Macho Man Randy Savage marrying Miss Elizabeth. Oh. So, like, I w- I watched that for a while, and it was. Like, my favorite thing. And I started to just like the product. I have an entire episode in me about the rise of Bret Hart from tag team technician to intercontinental showboat to world champion in one of the worst times of professional wrestling that I could talk for like literally hours about how special mm-hmm. that was to me. Also that he was Canadian and how important that was that the champion was Canadian. But like, and then I would drop off and I would come back for a bit and I would watch the occasional pay-per-view and I would follow along on the nascent internet. And then it's like, I remember there was at one point uh, when I was at university, I think it was like my stepmom was buying some furniture, like from the equivalent of, you know, like a trading post or Gumtree or whatever. Mm. And we were there picking it up. And the guy was like, my dad was like, oh, do you have anything else you want to sell? And he's like, oh, we have this end table and I have this old exercise bike and I have these box of old wrestling tapes. Do you want them? The thing is, this was maybe 2001. So it was 2002. So I got like maybe four years worth of pay-per-views out of order. And I would just watch them and catch up of all the things I'd missed. Some of the good and some of the really, really bad. And I found myself getting back into it. And then later when I came to Australia, because I wasn't studying and I wasn't working, what I would do is I would go to the video store, Civic Video on King Street, recently closed its doors, Mm -hmm. RIP. And I would get like the pay-per-views from the previous years because they were like dollar rentals. And I would watch them and try and catch up. Eventually... When, you know, torrenting became a thing, I started to download every pay-per-view and just follow it from pay-per-view to pay-per-view. And then CM Punk happened, and I suddenly needed to watch every week (laughs) because it was so exciting what they were doing. I did that for a while, and I eventually burned out. But luckily, the WWE Network came out around that time, which allows you to, like, it's like a Netflix for every bit of wrestling content for the past 40 years. But I found very quickly that I burnt out on that. And now I don't actually watch the pay-per-views. I mostly just follow on Twitter and like watch the big tentpole ones. Mm-hmm. But when I found out it was important was when I started to realize how often it had snuck back into my life. How often I, with it, without anything else to do or in secret, would just consume this media. Like I used to, like I said, download torrents of pay-per-views. I would then rip them through Handbrake and put them onto my iPad and watch them on the train. Or go out on my lunch breaks because I had to see what happened at the end with my giant headphones and my iPad 2 sitting on a bench watching wrestling in the middle of, like, you know, an office park. And really it was kind of the the internet and Twitter and stuff where I really got to talk about it. And my friend Alex and I have talked about this. You know, I have a bad habit and sort of an insecurity of thinking that my opinion is not as good as other people's opinion because their opinion is not is not mine so therefore I almost bend my will to it before mm-hmm. I realize it's the thing I've worked on but my friend Alex who got into wrestling maybe four or five years ago is saying no you actually do know a lot about this stuff and you have context and you know like I said 27 years where I can go back and look at what worked and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't yeah and you know talking about when I was a kid at Kirkland Lake with my cousin Jean-Michel and we would go to the gas station and rent these 1987 VHS tapes 
of you know Survivor Series and seeing you know Greg Valentine versus Rugged Ronnie Garvin. It being a match where Greg Valentine would wear a shin guard that was like a hard metal shin guard, and that was meant to be theoretically to protect his shin. But because he was a bad guy, what he would do is he would spin it around onto the back of his calf and put on the figure four leg lock, which would allow that shin guard to put on more pressure illegally because he was a bad guy and that was the bad <laughs> thing. So Ronnie Garvin for this match wore a shin guard, which he called the hammer jammer, which was meant to block that shin guard. And what ended up happening was that Greg Valentine went to put that modified figure four onto him with the heartbreaker in place to add extra pressure. And in the middle of it, Ronnie Garvin sits up and he starts staring at him and laughing. Uh. And he puts his thumbs in his ears and makes a bullwinkle face and sticks his tongue out (laughs) and goes, nah, it's not doing anything. I've blocked you. And I remember that moment as being like, oh no, wrestling can be silly. You can break the medium. And also, this is great. This is fucking great. Like, this is so goofy. So when it comes to, like, when it's meaningful, it's really been in articulating moments like that. Or CM Punk being frustrated with the direction of the company and knowing that his contract was up. And so sitting down on the ramp with a live microphone and airing his grievances. Mm. And saying, I have been trying to do things. You have been stopping me from trying to do things. If you don't let me do this, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to Ring of Honor. I might go to Japan for a bit. Hi, Colt Cabana. How's it going? It having this kind of tense thing of like, this. no, he's really, this is really what he thinks. This is not scripted. This is him talking about the guys in the back holding him back because he's different. That kind of energy and talking. Okay. Anyone who has followed my Twitter knows how much I feel about one young, gorgeous, bisexual weeaboo, Kenny Omega. Yep. And how yesterday, fighting for love as opposed to fighting for himself, he has finally triumphed over the golden star that is Keshiko Kara and won the IJPW Heavyweight Championship and was hugged by his lover and his best friends in the ring and everyone cried and it was beautiful. And just in explaining some of the storytelling behind some of their earlier matches to a friend, I start to realize, holy shit, this is such a special thing. And I think when you talk about what makes professional wrestling special, go look up talks by a guy named Mike Quackenbush, who started Chikara Pro Wrestling, who is also an exceptional pro wrestler. He talks about it as this is performance art. This mm-hmm. is physical theater. You are telling a story with your bodies and your words and your actions. But unlike any other performance art, this is dangerous. This is legitimately athletic and difficult and dangerous. Mm-hmm. People can get hurt. People can get killed. Your fans can reach out and touch you. You can land among them. And the story continues. The story can change, can be improvised. You know, it's theater in the round and improv and combat sports and gladiatorial fighting and Grand Guignol opera all wrapped up in one. I've regurgitated this story a lot, but going to Japan and going to the Karakuen Hall and seeing a Dragon Gate, a random Dragon Gate event where there was no English announcements and I do not speak Japanese and being able to follow the story just from what happened in the ring. That's the closest you can get to randomly walking in on, you know, the magic flute Mm. or Carmen or Madame Butterfly and being able to, from the emotion and the tone of the the music, know what's happening and cry at the end, even if you don't speak Italian. Nice. So yeah, that's why pro wrestling is special to me. And there's also a line from Sims that I steal a lot, which is where the beautiful contract of professional wrestling is that the wrestlers are pretending that they are wrestlers and the fans are pretending to be fans. And everyone is believing what they are doing and everyone is buying in. That is very powerful. And hearing that you're passionate with this, I want to jump to this question. When you feel creative fatigue set in, or maybe that you're doubting yourself as a creator at that particular moment, 
what helps you to renew and inspire yourself again? This does happen a lot, actually. I get that way with, because uh, the thing is, I've spoken in the past about how I get very affected by the emotions of a thing, mm-hmm. right? If there is a comic book that is a sad story or is a nihilistic story, it can fuck me up for a day. Mm-hmm. Like, I will feel shitty for the rest of the day because of how this thing ended or how a thing was written. So when I get burnout, which can happen, like, let's say, you know, I am reading a, a long running book and it has a terrible choice at the end, which I don't agree with. I will occasionally think, fuck, maybe I, maybe I don't want to read comics anymore. Mm. Or I'll be watching wrestling and, you know, some really good performer will have a terrible narrative choice foisted upon him by the guys in the back. You know, Sami Zayn and Bobby Lashley's sisters. That's all I'm going to say. Even in photography, if I find I am not having fun anymore, mm. if I've taken the same photos over and over again and developed a new role and found there's nothing I want to post out of this, there's nothing exciting out of this. I was clearly just running out the clock. What I do is... I take a break and then I challenge myself. I take an active choice to do something that I would not normally do. With professional wrestling, I will pull up something random. I will watch a Jakara match where some sentient ice creams, you know, <laughs> fight <laughs> Thor if he was a frog, a princess who saves herself, and a Viking berserker being special refereed by a sentient baseball who is the spirit of fair play. Wait, is this the thing that actually happened? Yes. Please yes. send it to me. Thunder Frog and Oleg the Berserker and Princess Kimberly the princess who saves herself and there's also a trio of ants like <laughs> there's fire ants and silver ants and uh, then they have the action force versions like missile assault ant who became missile assault man and he admitted that no i'm not an ant i am a man but he still oh spoke God. in pokemon speak which was missile assault man so that's the thing i will do that or it's like in photography i will grab my crappiest camera and i will say i have three rolls to burn i do not care what i come up with if i get one picture out of this that will be fine I will um, put the wrong lens on something. I'll Mm. do something that's experimental and challenging. With comic books, I will go buy a floppy issue based solely on its cover. Mm. Or, you know, go to Comixology, look what's on sale for 99 cents and get that. And it's like, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And even if it doesn't, you can go, all right, well, I'm going to go back and find something that I really like and just like feel something strongly about something. And that kind of usually re-energizes me and gets me back on track. With the math of you, it's real simple. I just, I change it up. The quiz episodes were a response to the fact that I had this hiatus where it was in January and I had this like niggling idea that I wanted to do this. And just like over the course of a day when I probably should have been working in the notepad of my phone, jotted down every question I was going to ask on that show over the course of an hour and a half. Like I didn't have to research. I didn't have to look it up. It was just stuff I came up with off my head. I I refined them later and I made sure everything I said was right. But that galvanizing energy of wanting to do a thing. Mm. And I have like, for example, I have one project in the pipe that the person I want to work with is having trouble with their internet and it's a lot of work involved. But it just came from this kind of fizzing idea of wanting to talk about this thing and just like jotting down notes either in a notepad or on paper and just like thinking, yeah, yeah, I can do this. And sometimes it ends up with nothing or sometimes it ends up with something. And I'll tell you, the math of you started like that. It's a situation where I don't feel bad for the projects that didn't get made because mm-hmm. some of them were bad ideas. But every once in a while, you get something where we're coming up on our 81st episode of this podcast I started just shy of two years ago. That's amazing. And that's something that I thought I was maybe going to do a dozen times. It's kind of <laughs> kind of great, you know? That's so wonderful. You're also, as far as all the things that I listen to, you are one of the very few creators that has regularly and casually brought up therapy and mental health as something that have been part of your life. 
plenty of people do bring it up whenever it's sort of crisis situation. But it's been mm-hmm. really meaningful to me personally that you were willing to reference it as a normal part of your life, not as a, you know, kind of confessional issue. So how did you decide that you'd be comfortable referencing that in your work? You know, I'm I'm not sure it was a conscious decision. It was one of those things where, and I'll say it outright, I mean, I, with the exception of maybe the last year, before that, I was seeing a therapist every week for a little over two years. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky in that I got a therapist that got me. I was also a person who, frankly, was and still do occasionally struggle with a lot of things in life. And this has been a really shitty week for that because with, you know, Kate Spade and mm-hmm. the one that really hit me was Anthony Bourdain. That that fucked me up. Yeah. I could not believe that. And like I'm going to quote from Justin McElroy where it's like this person had respect and money and the greatest job you could ever conceive of. And depression does not give one solitary shit about that. But I mean... When it comes to mental health, like I was at a point where, especially if I'm in a job I don't enjoy, mm-hmm. I can maintain for a long time until the cracks start to appear at the edges. Yeah. You know, it's like that bad guy in Doctor Strange where you see those little black cracks appear in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I would have these like flare ups of, of temper and I'd have to like physically stop myself from punching a wall or breaking a screen or something. And I finally got to the point where I was having little panic attacks at work. I would get frustrated at someone or something unfair. And I would have to sit down because I would get so scared. I didn't know what I was going to do. And my friend Annie, they have been so great in, at that time, being kind of my sounding board, being my buffer. And me being able to text them at a moment's notice and being like, I I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. And finally deciding that I need to see someone Mm -hmm. was... (laughs) And this is going to sound weird. It was because I had decided in my head, the way that you diagnose yourself with these things, that I had ADHD because mm-hmm. like I'd heard a podcast where someone was talking about these are some of the things that happened. And I had been losing time and dissociating for years and had not identified that that was what it was. It is wild whenever you hear stuff like that. You go like, wait a second. Yeah, it gives you a framework to understand mm-hmm. some of your things. And I avoided it for years for the idea where I would say, you know, I'm not as bad as other people. Other people are clearly having it so much worse than me. Mm-hmm. And so I would be taking away from someone else if I were to take up someone's time with this. And that's bullshit. Yep. That is bullshit. It is not a zero-sum game. You getting help for yourself does not take that help away from someone else. It's unrelated. I remember reading Hyperbole and a Half, mm. where she talked really deeply about her depression. And being wrecked for two days because i'm just like i am nowhere near as bad as this so i just need to suck it up (gasps) clearly i am the only if everyone feels this way i am the only one who is not dealing with it so that's why i used to hate when i would say i'm really struggling with this thing and someone would say everyone feels that way oh so everyone is better at this than me i'm the only broken one who can't deal therefore if i go to a therapist they'll go oh it's not mental illness you just suck yep that was my fear. And I went to a therapist and within one session where I just sat down and started talking mm-hmm. and she's like, you're coming back next week. You're coming back every Friday and we are going to fix this. What she did is she, the way I describe it is like, I'm an overanalyzer. I pick at stuff. Uh, I pick at stuff yeah, a lot. Yeah, me too. I feel this. And I go into these little spiral and it's to mm-hmm. the point where, you know, I would have a nice time out with friends and I would spend the entire walk home convincing myself that no they didn't really like me they only just tolerate me oh my god i'm incredibly annoying and oh my god there there aren't these my friends saints for putting up with this piece of shit like me oh i feel this i want to hug you so much this is one of mine as well right 
getting home in tears. Yeah. And my partner, my ex, at the, well, my wife at the time, saying, what happened? Nothing. It was a fine time. We just hung out and stuff. But, oh, God, I'm just a I'm just this maudlin yeah. person arriving. And what my therapist did, the analogy I use is I used to try and pick locks with my fingers. Mm-hmm. And I would end up in tears with bloody fingers. Yeah. My therapist gave me a set of lock picks. And everything became more efficient. And I understood how the mechanisms worked. And I knew that when it turns like this and it doesn't go, it's because this tumbler wasn't been activated in this particular way. Mm. All right. So I became far more efficient at picking those locks. And I would get to it without bloodying my fingers. And so, and even just like, I mean, it's become kind of a a thrown off flippant self-care kind of mantra thing. What could be making you feel this way? Mm. Have you eaten properly? Have you slept did something shitty happen last week and it's still kind of hanging around? And here's the thing. like My thing, and I talked about it on Twitter a lot, I used to miss trains or get on the wrong train mm-hmm. all the time. Because Sydney's rail network is complicated. You can stand on a platform and within one minute, two trains that look identical will come by and one will go to where you're going for 80% of the way and then turn and put you in another ah. direction if you're not careful. So I was having this thing where I was always late for work because I would try to get on the... McCoy Park line and I would get on the Hornsby line and it would be fine until I got to Chatswood and by then I was engrossed in editing or reading or do, or mm-hmm. listening to a podcast and then I would look up and I would go fuck I'm in Deniston I'm in Kalara what am I doing and I would beat myself up mm. for the entire time that I was going to the point where I would arrive and be this sweaty stressed out mess and that specific situation was one that I dealt with it with my therapist and I said this is throwing me off and she's like well you could try and be hyper vigilant and I'm like no that sounds like hell to me mm. having to be paranoid that I'm in the wrong oh, place God. all the time no no I don't want that and so she's like all right so th- what you are describing is dissociating you are losing time when you're waiting on the platform you are losing time when you are on the train and you come back to yourself and you don't know where you are putting that into that context and saying that it was a trigger from stress one time i did it and i realized that i had done it mm-hmm. and i quickly said what's happened this week oh i had a really stressful meeting at work and i had to do performance management with someone that i liked who really wasn't getting it and i had a really tough meeting with my boss because i wasn't meeting targets mm-hmm. and i went home like a nervous wreck two days later i disassociated on the train tying those two things together gave me such relief that I walked from platform to platform like I was on a cloud. Uh. There was no pain. I sat down and I waited for my next train and I walked in 10 minutes late and I rolled my eyes and I say, oh yeah, funny story. I ended up on the wrong train. Anyway, I'm here now. Wow. And the realization that I did that, I actually called my therapist on my first like coffee break and I was like, what did I just do? She's like, that's, that's a breakthrough. That is. You've just done this. So when it comes to mental health, Again, it doesn't always work for everyone with every therapist. Oh, yeah, no. There is no harm in finding out why your brain does what it does. Mm. Like, I haven't seen my therapist in a year because the minute I got a baby and moved to a different job, I was just like, this isn't conducive for me to come on the one afternoon that you're free. Yeah. You know, we'll keep in touch, but I'm not able to see you for a while. And she was fine with that. But now, if I have a bad moment or if I get too stressed, Kimiko will be like, maybe you should see your therapist again. And I can actually say... You know, actually, I know exactly what she would say. She would say, I'm looking at it this way, I'm looking at it this way, and I need to do it this way. And I will. It's just in the moment, I know it's still going to suck. It's not Mm. a magical fix for everything. Oh, if only. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to have, you know, an epiphany like Robert De Niro at the end of Analyze This, (laughs) and everything's going to be fine again. It's like, no, I'm still going to have bad moments, but I know why these bad moments happen, and I know how to work on them. 
And so that is why I went to therapy and that's what I got from therapy. And honestly, mentioning it, I don't think should ever be a source of stigma or shame. People say, oh, you're self-centered or, you know, you're indulgent. It's like, no, you're not. If I was trying to fix something and I took a course on how to, you know, work wood or do electrical wiring, you would not call me self-centered for wanting to do that thing better. Yeah. You know? That's a really good analogy. Yeah, man. Train your brain like any muscle. Yeah. Or like your immune system, you know, when you pick up a sandwich off the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's not, you know what? I'm not that brave. Not a floor sandwich person. Although, now that you've mentioned that, just quick sidebar, are you finding that your finickiness or your, what was it you described yourself also in the Margaret Willison episode that you're sort of fastidious? Oh yeah. So trust me, that still happens. Oh really? But now you have a small sticky child. That's true. But here's the thing. And I mean, like, I'm also a person who, you know, will get overwhelmed by crowded places Mm. or by having too many choices or, you know, occasionally how a certain shirt will feel on my back on a hot day. Oh, no, I'm with you. Amen. You wear the wrong shirt under a a sweater. Oh, no. And go out and your whole day could be ruined. (laughs) But no, here's the thing. I still have problems with like getting stuff on my hands or having something be messy or my latest thing as I found since moving having flat surfaces in my house that have enough stuff on them that I can't use them for the reason that they are used for Mm, like attempting to put a pot down on a kitchen counter and not being able to find a space big enough will make me just kind of go and just kind of sweep everything over I feel this feel yeah so that stuff still happens but it's funny and this is gonna sound smalty as hell all of my various you know, neuroses and anxieties and stuff. I don't feel those for Hero. I had a scenario where I was at a shopping mall with Kimiko in Chatswood Chase. And we had been around to some nice places and bought some nice things and had lunch. And suddenly out of nowhere, we realized that we needed to change Hero. We were down in the bottom of the mall and the parents' room was up at the top, which meant navigating two lifts and crossing the floor. And then we realized that not only was it a number two, but there had been a diaper jailbreak. Oh no! His khaki shorts that he was wearing were soaked through. Oh, no. And it was up his back. Oh. And I went, okay. And I turned to Kimiko, and I took him out of out of the shopping cart he was in, and I'm like, you go to Kmart, buy him some cheap clothes. I'm going to the parents' room. Come and meet me when you do. So I grabbed him, this child who was squirming because now he was out of his comfy pram and being held by his dad and also uncomfortable because he had just pooped himself. And I rode up three escalators and a lift and went around to the parents' room and got him into the parents' room and changed him. And got him out of his clothes and put those clothes in the sink to rinse and got rid of the diaper and put a new one on him even though he was squirming and fighting. And when I pulled out the bottom drawer of the the bin, it hit my big toe right on the end of the nail and my toe started bleeding. I then had to hold this baby wearing just a diaper and walk him back and forth with my bleeding toe and kind of singing to him to calm him down so that he wasn't crying and freaking out and letting him play with the toys while my partner was in Kmart frantically buying a suit that she could bring back upstairs and get him dressed in. And she did, and we got him dressed, and we put him back in the pram, and she turned to me and she says, are you okay? And I went, yeah, why wouldn't I be? And the enormity of the entire situation then kind of dropped on me like a ton of bricks. And I went, I was never at above a 2 out of 10 in terms of stress wow that blows my mind yeah mine's blown had something like that happened to me like say i dropped food on my hands or on my clothes or something and i had to pull off a quarter of what i just described to you would have had me into a bundle of nerves complete wreck but i wasn't i was fine wow. and here's why i think that is it's because there is 
no negotiating or complaining when it comes to dealing with the situation of a baby under one. Mm. If this kid doesn't want to sleep and you need that baby to sleep, it does not matter how tired you are. Mm. It does not matter what you had planned to do that night. It does not matter when you have to go to work tomorrow. The only thing you have to do, the only thing you can do, is get that baby to sleep any way you can. It's oddly freeing mm. to have something that black and white. Yeah. So yeah, when it comes to fastidiousness and having a baby, I've been peed on, I've been pooped on, I've had... This last week, I have been thrown up on so often Aww. because Hero had conjunctivitis in both eyes, oh. which is like pink eye where it goes shut. Poor baby. He had a middle ear infection and he had a stomach bug <gasps> in a week. What? He would throw up any food that hit his stomach. Oh, poor baby. He would start coughing. The coughing would start to gurgle, and he would throw up whatever he had. Oh, my had. God. It's like he didn't aspirate or anything, did he? Like... No, he didn't. He was fine. With... I don't know. You're good. Your dog's barking. <laughs> I know. It is. Oh, stop. During that same week, Kimiko had tonsillitis to the point where the side of her neck was swollen out, so you could visibly see it. And, like, taking care of him with that, the only stress would be is, okay, is he going to vomit right now? Do I have a towel within reach? Mm. If not, it goes down my back. I don't care. We'll make sure he's okay. And, hey, once upon a time, Hero was the baby who didn't throw up, and we counted ourselves so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. But, no, when it comes to stuff like that, it's like I also was the second oldest of seven siblings, you know? I've had babies around. Mm. I don't care about changing diapers. I I don't consider the two to be linked. So... Mm. Like, at one point, I went to my boss, and I said, ask me how many times I was thrown up on between 11 o'clock last night and 5 a.m. this morning. And he goes, how many were you? Three. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, uh, to come back to your question, the fastidiousness and dealing with a baby, unrelated, doesn't bother me. That's awesome. I have two sort of finishing up questions. Sure. One of these is a little bit tougher than the other, but I don't know. We'll see. So... If you were going to be a superhero, what moment in your life do you think would be the start of your origin story? <laughs> and uh, what would be the cause that you fight for? Wow. Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> Thank you. I... I was waiting for the inevitable powers question, and I was going to answer. Nope, don't uh, care. Which I always go, which, which is super <laughs> speed. But no, here's the thing. I think my origin story would be that I would see a small moment of injustice or unfairness i'm not talking about you know daredevil pushing an old lady out of the path of a truck or was an old man i can't remember <laughs> and then he got hit with chemicals and turned into a thing yeah uh i'm talking about and this is an actual scenario i've seen because i work in Parramatta, and Parramatta can be a rough place i mm. saw a white supremacist with a neck tattoo hassle mm. a pakistani man who was holding his four-year-old daughter Uh, And shoving the guy and putting his hand in his face less than a meter from rushing traffic. And I did not get there in time. And I don't know if I would have said anything if I did because you don't know how you're going to react in those situations. But it was over Mm. in a minute and the guy left and he was, you know, screaming and carrying on. But you bet your ass if I had had superpowers, I would have gotten involved. And frankly, I probably should have gotten involved more than I did. To the point where I was a wreck for an hour afterwards, you know, with the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Was I going to watch someone get shoved into traffic? Was I going to watch something terrible happen? So something like that, a small injustice that was out of my hands that I could fix. Oh, that would be, you know, I almost said my start of darkness, but my start of heroism. That's where things start is small things have big effects. Mm. And as for my cause, I think that's where I would start. Small change. 
I would be, you know, Spider-Man Homecoming. I'd be giving a lady directions and having her buy me a churro. <laughs> Aww, that's really nice. And also just bringing it back to professional wrestling, go look up Mustafa Ali. He's an amazing, okay. amazing person. He is one of the only true heroic babyface good guy wrestlers out there. And yeah, it's all about shining a light in the darkness, even if it's a little wow. light, you know? Those are some of my favorite kind of superheroes. I'm not really into the ones that, you know, they're fighting really specific villains. I love it whenever it's a systemic or like personal thing. Those are such meaningful stories. Yeah. And it's like, I, again, again, this is something that's like, I have a tattoo planned for this particular moment because every time I describe it, I start to tear up. But I've, and it's something I talked about a couple of episodes ago. I, in my old age, have become incredibly susceptible to emotional moments where someone has to do a thing because if they don't do a thing, nobody else will do a thing. And I talk about in Spider-Man Homecoming when he's trapped in a subway and he has to Mm -hmm. do the thing and you see him give up and he looks into his reflection in the water below him and he says, come on, Spider-Man. And it's like, ah, and then he does the thing. I have talked at length about Paige Tycho having to drop the bomb because there's no one else who will drop the bomb and if she doesn't drop the bomb, then everything is for nothing. And all right, I'm going to try and get through this and I'm (laughs) I'm actually getting a little choky right now. There's a moment in uh, Justice League Unlimited where the Flash is the last person. Everyone else in the Justice League is defeated. And there is a big, bad, evil monster that is Lex Luthor merged with Brainiac. And he looks at him and he says, what are you going to do? I've defeated everyone else. What are you going to do? And the Flash runs away. And... (laughs) But he doesn't run away. He runs around the entire world. And he comes back. And he hits him. And he runs around again. And again, and again, and again, and he hits him until he defeats him. And I'm actually getting teary right now saying it. I know, me too now. Because sometimes when you run away from something, you're running away so hard, that you can come back and you punch it in the fucking face. And that's one. And the other one is in the, the same Justice League Flash. Because I tell you, Justice League Unlimited Flash is the best fucking Flash, and I will fight you if you say otherwise is at one point this evil uh, bad guy creates robot duplicates of all the Justice League and they all come at them with their worst fears. And then they say, you know, you have Justice Lord Superman who says you can't save them all. You have to be ruthless. You have to lose yourself. And then Justice Lord Flash turns up and he looks at Flash and he says, and he's swinging at him and, and Flash is ducking every time. And he says, you're a slacker. You're a child. You're a clown. What business do we have with the world's greatest heroes? And Flash looks at him and he says, says you, I have a seat at the big table. I'm going to paint my logo on it. And he punches him so hard he explodes. And I'm just like, ah, it's such a tiny moment. And it's a funny moment in this kid's show. And there is a reason why I got former guest of the show, Aaron Hunter, to draw me a Flash running around the outside of the Flash symbol with the words slacker, child, and clown written around the outside because fuck it. I'm gonna paint my logo on it. Yeah. Ah, I have to wipe oh, my eyes now, so Megan beautiful. Bob. Ah. I'm so sorry. No, I'm not sorry. That was really beautiful. Thank ah. you for being willing to talk about that. You're welcome. And the thing is, this is another thing. Again, I discussed with my therapist. I said, anytime something is so powerful that you can't describe it without crying, that's some, probably something that should live on your skin for the rest of your life. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, there's a reason why I've got the little rune from I Kill Giants that tells you that you're stronger than you think. 
and then I've got I've got the uh, <laughs> the two bass kicks and a snare drum clap from the beginning of Be My Baby. And I've also got from Hamilton the lines uh, "Look at where we are, look at where we started." Oh. So yeah, I feel a lot about stuff. Those are really <laughs> lovely things to feel about. I have one last question ah, for you. All right, let's bring and it. <laughs> this is a a smash fiction courtesy of smash fiction all right and now for the lightning round <laughs> so you have this wonderful way of building connection with the people you interview and Aww. this is kind of how i think of what you do but it's like you want to show off how wonderful and special they are to everyone <laughs> it is almost as if when you have guests on it is a, a sort of show and tell where you're like this is this person, and they're exceptional, and I want you to know how wonderful they are. <laughs> so for a lightning round, I think the best way of showing off all the, see, over 70 guests now would be a party. So I'm curious if you're going to bring all your past guests together mm-hmm. and introduce them to one another. Yeah. What sort of party would you want to hold? Oh, man. Oh, wait, there's more. There's follow-up. Oh, this is how the hear. lightning round all goes. All right, here you go. All right, so what kind of party would you want Mm -hmm. to hold? Any particular entertainment or venue in mind that you feel like is going to lend something to this? Any guests who you absolutely have to introduce to one another? And then, very crucially, what sort of punch or other cocktail menu do you think (laughs) you'd make for the occasion? All right, I I got this. Because the thing is, this is actually something where part of this was inspired by like one of the favorite birthdays that I've ever had combined with another favorite birthday that I had but at one point I went to the Belgian beer cafe which was a a great old place this huge cavernous kind of place where they would serve you know mussels and french fries with mayonnaise and like Mm. these beautiful like like beef stews and stuff that sticks to your ribs and they have a million different like powerful and interesting beers on their list and they bring you you know a beer menu the size of your chest to look at I told my friends that I was inviting them. I didn't tell them that I put a whole bunch of money on the bar because I didn't want them to pay for anything because I wanted them to have conversations and order whatever they wanted because I want to be the one at the party who goes, oh, what's that? That looks really cool. I'm going to get one of those. Tell me about it. Is it cool? Is it good? You know, you can order one named La Chouf, which has a little gnome blowing out on a dandelion on the front. And then the other party was at a bar called Spooning Goats, which is a tiny bar in Sydney, which has an at-at with a goat's head as its sign. And it has a Sega Master System where you can play Sonic on a little TV. Oh, my God. Comfy chairs. And what we did is that we turned up and we annexed a couch and two chairs. And whenever someone else in the bar would leave, we would steal their seat to the (laughs) point where we had about 20 people and half the chairs at the bar. Uh, There's also the the, uh, one where Kimiko stole one of my cameras and took pictures of it and got a cake maker to replicate a Lomography La Sardina Munasi edition in cake and fondant. And the thing weighed like 10 kilos and she carried that around the city in secret. (laughs) I was so proud of her. That's amazing. It was great. I'll find pictures and send it if I can. So that's the kind of party. I want the kind of party where people are trying all kinds of things and they're talking to one another and getting excited about trying something new and... When it comes to guests and introducing each other, I am happy to throw... I talk about my partner, Kimiko, like this, and it's one of her crowning glories, and that's one of the reasons I love her so much, is that she is a social hand grenade. I can throw her into any situation full of strangers, 
And in half an hour, she will know where they went to school, how many siblings they had, what their favorite thing is, what their aspiration is, what they do for work, uh, what they secretly do in their life to enrich themselves, everything. I've learned things about my friends that I have known for years that she learned in 20 minutes. That's amazing. It's an incredible talent. It's amazing to watch her work. And so I know there are a couple of people like that in my list of guests. You know, I would throw Camille Washington of the Unfriendly Black Hotties. I would let her loose in any room because she is one of the coolest people I know. Margaret is an easy one like that. I've met her in person and she's exactly as bubbly and talkative and inclusive as she sounds. You know, I'd like to get Sims talking to people. I think Sims is fun when he's in his comfort zone. I think if he's in a comfy place, I think it would be great. Any of the Mulcarens, I could see chairing a table at this event and having extremely emphatic conversations about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would set you and Kit and I would send anyone with the vaguest interest in animals to you. <laughs> I would get, you know, Karen Corday and Lucy Harrison and Rosie Fletcher and get them talking about, you know, having feelings about music videos, especially if they involve Prince. I would set Randall Trang and Daniel Bins at a table talking about Kung Fu movies. Oh, yeah. It's... I would, oh god that that's not even talking about the gem jam crew about uh, you know Annie Creighton and Mac Weaver and Kit Walker who are just these people who have these fantastic interests and so much emotion to put behind it or someone like like Hub from Titan of the Defense who I talked to mm. who is some like he works as a bartender in his daily life and he knows half the podcasters in Portland not because he's a networker but because they would come into the bar and he would chat to them and he's just this genuine, honestly interested person who is just like, yeah, man, you want to talk about Teen Titan comics from the 60s where they're <laughs> Mr. Jupiter, fifth richest and so therefore fifth most trustworthy man in, in the world, filled balloons <laughs> full of hallucinogens, teach everyone a lesson? <laughs> like, yeah, man. And also, Hub's got a great knowledge of cocktails too, so he'd be very well. Um, and also when it comes to like, I know that Bilal Shelby and Juliet Kahn, Bilal lives in Chicago and Juliet lives in Boston. And so I can be like contrasting cities. And like, I think it would just be really easy to get any kind of like mixer going. Terry Pratchett talks about an analogy of like good parties are like beehives mm. where you mm. get a, you know, a group of six in a cluster all with their heads in. And then one will leave that group and then go to another group. And then that group will change. And then everyone will leave that group and go oh. to another. It's the waggle dance, but about pop culture. I love it. Yeah. Oh my God. The waggle dance, but about (laughs) pop culture. That fills my entire heart with joy. So yeah, that's my plan. You got to tell me about what sort of punch or cocktail menu you want to have. Oh, well, that would be, again, thinking about the party at Spooning Goats, the thing at the Belgian Beer Cafe, I would want a range of options. All of them would need Mm -hmm. a punny name and at least one ridiculous ingredient, like something that would have yogurt in it or something that would have like you know szechuan pepper in it or something that makes you go what like at the rook for example there was one where it was like a smoked tea cocktail Mm. and the way they would do that is they would come to you with one of those big domes that they have for room service except it was made of glass and you was entirely full of smoke and then they would lift it and the smoke would clear and there would be your cocktail because they had burned tea leaves on the tray and covered it over until oh. the smoke went into your drink and you could taste it on the back of your throat. Nice. A place that was a menu like that where you could see something that someone else had and go, oh, I've got to try that and run up with that sort of excitement. That's fantastic. For some reason, now I'm just picturing like some sort of horrifying martini that, or something with a rim on it, mm-hmm. but instead of it being salt or sugar, it being like cereal dust. Oh, it's that, um, was it uh, Milk by Momofuku? 
thing with uh, yeah. like the birthday cake milkshake, which I did get to try when I was in New York. I just watched the chef table on that, and I had the birthday cake milkshake and a slice of crack pie, which I got to say, I know it's like a chess pie variant. To my fellow Quebecois out there, uh, tarte au sucre, uh, sugar pie, I'm looking mm-hmm. for a recipe. Mine died with my Credence Cecile, so oh, I'll need somebody to, yeah. to send it to me. Because sugar pie is basically a butter tart, but it's a pie. Mm, I think I've had a version of that. Yeah, you look up recipes and it's just like, Cream, sugar, right. flour, that's it. <laughs> is there not like an egg to hold that together? I think so, is yeah. Because I was like, what's the binding agent? But I don't but know. But basically, yeah, you're cooking it so the residual sugars come out of the cream and blend with the actual sugars to make like this gelatinous thing. And I used to buy little baby sugar pies from a convenience store in Quebec when I lived in Gatineau mm. and eat them on the way home so I wouldn't have to share them with my siblings or my dad. <laughs> and good lord, I have no idea how I survived that year taking in that much sugar on the regular. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I've had like a little slice of that stuff and it is so good. Oh, it's the shit. It is the least complicated thing, but it's also the best thing. Right? Yeah. It is. Oh. Well, thank you so much for letting me do that. Uh, no problem, Megan Bob. So yeah, I mean, God, we've been talking for two hours. <laughs> I know. Well, I got through everything I wanted to get through. Like I did have some other, you know, tangential questions because I did want to ask what kind of flowers you'd put in your beard if you ever did a flower beard. <laughs> but, you know, it's like I could live without knowing. <laughs> Daisies. Otherwise, it wouldn't thread very well. I've got a very curly beard. It's like sheep's wool. Oh, so. all right. All right. No, Daisies make sense. All right. So I've got another burning question answered. All right. <laughs> All right, so should we wrap it up then? So if people yeah. wanted to find my stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, you see, I've got this podcast called The Math of You, and you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokified, as I tell you at the end of every episode. And good Lord, I have had no iTunes reviews in months and months and months, which is why I keep fighting oh, it. Oh, no! Because every time I ask on Twitter, everyone's like, oh, I, I just use the RSS. I don't go to iTunes anymore. Oh, I forget my login or whatever. And I'm like, damn you, market fragmentation. iTunes is such a piece of shit, yep. but I know what you mean. I'm just like, especially with the crossover between a lot of my listeners are American, and I have like 15 reviews in Australia, and one of them is a one-star review, and that has brought my <gasps> average down. And Oh, no! It's not that I'm not bitter, but fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, go on iTunes, do a thing. I mean, is it okay? Like, because I've thought about going and reviewing it, but then I was like, oh, is that going to be weird because I've been on it? No, dude, go for it. Okay, all right, I'll do it. Because I actually do know my iTunes login. So there you go, Megan. But if you think about it, you are one eightieth of the content. So you're there. We go. statistically insignificant when it comes to any kind of bias. Awesome. Sold. <laughs> All right. So how do, we, how do we end this? I don't know. How's, how's the guest end things? I know. You know what? Have a really nice day, whatever day you're having, whoever's listening to this. And I think we'll leave it at that. We could be pirates. very much to Megan Bob for her time. Now as for my signature cocktails, I have a tendency to try pretty much anything, so I'll give you one of my more reliable standbys. I present the Bearded One 
or if you want to be fancy, Barbados. Not Barbatos, that's a bat demon, it's different. In an old-fashioned glass over a massive ice cube, I want you to add two ounces of Mount K black barrel rum, or some other nice toasty aged rum. Add an ounce of port, or tawny port for a slightly different finish, and two shakes each of Peychaud's bitters and chocolate bitters. Spin the glass twice to combine, and garnish with a twist of flamed orange peel. A libation to warm the soul, and stoke the fires of memory and the true passions of the heart. Enjoy! recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown, and this week, hosted by Megan Bob. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You, yes you, could make it rain. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would really, just really appreciate it. If you would like to support non-monetarily, as I mentioned during the show, I'm really in some dire need of some iTunes reviews. You can go there and you can, you know, just mark me as five stars, and that's really good. It helps people find the show. Or you can write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? Also, if you do write a review, tell me what story you're in, so that way I can go and find it. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song going all the way back to episode one. I just checked. That's 17 hours and 9 minutes worth of music. Including this song. It's Timps, the Sick in the Head song by Fiona Apple. It's off of the album Extraordinary Machine, which is my favorite Fiona Apple album, and it's the one I don't think anybody talks about, which is a real shame. It's a killer album. I update the playlist every week as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Emily Booza, co-host of Whelmed, the Young Justice Files podcast, about Supermartian, fanfic, and emotions. Join me, won't you? <laughs> <laughs>